Radio star. What's up, buddy? <laughs> What's happening? I thought that was a suiting intro. Yeah, I thought it was too when you start playing. I was like, okay, I get where we're going with this. <laughs> What's well, the whole thing, man? Is you know what's weird thinking about it now? Welcome to another episode of Lead Paint Chips, <laughs> by the way. It, what gets me too is to see the arc of uh, how media flows. It flows from it flowed through a heavy demographic of radio output and people consuming media that way to going to a more of a mainstream corporate style. And then now it's back to the decentralized thing again. Like podcast is like a version. It's got a hybrid version of both of those audio and video things. That's like unregulated. And it's the most raw version. Like it's, it's almost like podcasts. It's we're able to pick apart all the good things that media does and then strip away a lot of the makeup that's involved with it to a degree. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they've even went so far in some of the podcasts to go all the way back to the, the radio dramas of, you know, like the, the twenties or whatever, where they would just have like little, you know, sketches oh. or whatever, little skits and, uh, you know, like do like radio plays basically. There's yeah. some podcasts that do that. HG Wells one there's, I forgot. I have it saved in, it's one of my subscribers, <laughs> things I subscribe to. And they play old school um, radio type of uh, dramas and stuff and, and horror things. It's funny now to listen to them because it's, you can tell it was, that genre was in its infancy for a long time. I think a lot of it's like writing. A good, a good, a good writer, like think of Shakespeare and stuff, but how many people came before him and failed of telling, of storytelling? Well, there's the there's the conspiracy theories that maybe Shakespeare stole some of his uh, material at the time, but you know, oh, I want to doubt that. Another uh, podcast. Yeah, <laughs> well, if you think about it, if you're a writer back then, you don't have the ability to really the, the knowledge didn't flow as adequately like, like it does now. So if you travel to another country and heard some stories, you could take those stories now and make them your own, and nobody would really know. Not for like hundreds of years later, almost. I mean, think about the amount of people that read. Well, and they went so far as 
that that the theory is that maybe he had like a ghostwriter for some of his stuff. Like he not to say that you know take away his talent, but like you know the the breadth of all the things that he did. Like maybe he had a, a ghostwriter, and and the theory is that it might have been one of the the women in his life, you know. But they couldn't write at the time because it was you know seen as you know way too outside the standards for. What a are we doing? He can't uh, be giving women you know, all this credit. <laughs> so uh so they you know they put it under his name and he got the credit for it but that's kind of what the you know they're they're saying now with that well, i, I want to doubt that for a second if you think about anybody who writes a script or a good movie or anything that has an amazing story arc it's not done by one person it's usually a team Never. of people i mean the best way to write anything or get an idea about something is in a group uh making up an idea and then and then everybody plays with the idea in real time and molds it into something. You, you need that outside influence to really graft a, an amazing story. It doesn't really happen in a bubble. I mean, in a, in a isolation, it, you to, to get a good story with an amazing arc takes a lot of minds looking at it from different angles to really craft it to a, a, an amazing arc. It, it flashed some of the characters that normally probably wouldn't because you're getting more uh, inputs and more viewpoints that kind of add their own little twist that, that make the characters richer in the long run. Oh yeah. And, but the only thing with that is, is it's fine to create a script that way if we're talking about movies in particular, but like, you know, when it comes to the actual direction, it, that needs a singular vision or it kind of falls apart. You can't have too many, you know, uh, chefs in the kitchen as, or whenever it comes to the actual directing of the the film, or then it the I mean, because even though it's got the 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 enrichment from the you know the characters built into the you know the acting and, and the script itself, you need the director to keep it one singular focus, or it's, it say you it loses that illusion that it was you know one person that made the story. Yeah, but and there's also a lot of instances instances too where a writer makes something, but it. Just because you write something, it you're, it's not going to translate properly to a movie. Like even a book, a book, you, there's so much that that you can't translate into the visual side of something. You're, there's always a limiting factor. Even if you go from video to to a book, you're running into a limiting factor. Because I, I don't know if you've ever. By the way, this is uh, Doctor Death from Death Holler. Find him on YouTube and all your major podcasts. Check out their stuff. But. Even then, like, I don't know if you ever read the Resident Evil book series that they made after the game. And even even they don't do adequate, adequately capture what the video game or the movies brung you. Or the, I should say the video game more than anything. It's it's a totally different yeah. way of capturing something in the moment. Yeah, I, I think I've read the first I actually have them here beside of me. Uh, they, they're enjoyable for what they were, but yeah, they lost a lot of the 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 you know what was in the game but the the game i mean it's weird whenever you move from a visual medium to a, to the book form i mean because it's uh, you have to i mean the exposition has to care, do a lot of the the lifting that the you know the visuals would have gave you know uh, even like a video game there's things you see and things expressed on the characters faces that have to be expressly written or it, it's not conveyed that way whenever it's uh, switched over to, you know, uh, print form, basically. You, you know what I'm wondering, too? I'm wondering if a lot of why Resident Evil never really translated to a movie or a book very good is because you started from a position where the, the, in, the person that was interacting with the medium had actually some kind of autonomy and a, and a free will to a degree on a linear path. Because if you play the Resident the first Resident Evil game, there's a lot of different ways to approach the game. The ending's the same, but the arc and the story 
there are certain ways you can interact with the storyline and change it too. Like from from the the plant inside the basement and other things like that, you still have some weird free will within the game that you're taking direction of the character and you're moving the story yourself. And I wonder if that's why you get a loss of translation too. Well, I think that's part of it. They, I think they've got a term for it, and I, and I struggled on this on a previous Death Holler podcast, but it's called emergent gameplay, and it's the the narrative that you build as the the player within the framework of the story, the things that happen. They create a story that w- really can only happen for you, I mean, because of the set of whatever was going on. I mean, like, you know, you the way that the enemy, you know, happened to be in the room and the way that you utilized whatever was available at your disposal created like a different version of the narrative for you than it did for like somebody who was playing it a totally different way. And maybe, you know, they chose to like run from that particular enemy and like, you know, got chased into another room and had a totally different like way that they went about solving the whole thing. It's, uh, you know, it, it's uh, singular to video games. That's, that's hard to translate to anything else because... I mean, you're you have some agency in where the story's going, even yes. if you the framework stays the same. Yeah, that's the, now. The more I think about that, that hugely impacts trying to translate it in, into a story that someone else is telling that's supposed to be consumed by everybody. If everybody that played the game had a different kind of like view of their agency of what there was the available for in the, in the game, when you make a movie, you're trying to hit all these weird notes. I wonder if that's why you get more backlash from the from the gamer community. When someone makes a movie and they're like, that's lame. But then you talk to some people and they're like, no, that was hella good. I wonder if that's why you get a lot more discrepancy when it comes to that. I, I guarantee it is. Yeah. I mean, there's no there's no way that, I mean, the gamer is, has been involved so personally with it that it's almost, it, it's, it's, it's like, I liken it to the way that like, uh, people who read novels uh, always bitch about the movies that are made, you know, based upon the novel, because the way you interact with it, you know, in your imagination, even reading a novel is going to be different the way that somebody else envisions it. And I mean, the way, and it's, and it's even more so probably for video gamers because the way that they experience like certain like boss battles and that, that sort of thing are never going to be exactly the way that some other person or whoever the director is, even if they're a gamer, uh, personal experience then you know that way and and they don't see their vision of how things should have been on screen and that's why they're always complaining about it you know what i, I never really thought too much about that but just just talking about it and thinking about it now i think that's more of a key factor than anything is you you've removed the agency from the individual using their imagination for the book and what their experience was and now you're you're defaulting to someone else's experience trying to understand it I think that's why I think that's why it always ends up working better if you never originally read the book or interacted with the storyline because you never made your own imagination based on the interaction you had. It's funny whenever uh, it's I agree with you exactly on that but it's funny if you go from the movie and then you try to read the book after because your imagination defaults to the char- the actors who played the characters in the movie version. Yes. Like you, you don't form any version yourself of them. It's like if you wa- if you read The Shining after you've watched the movie, uh, you know Jack Nicholson is you know Jack Torrance. So you can't imagine anybody else in that role. Like your brain just okay, that's who I saw first. But if you go the opposite way. Jack Nicholson sometimes it's hard to rectify. It's like, I mean, as good of an actor as he is, it's like, well, that's not the version of Jack Torrance that I, that I imagined. Yes. Yeah. That's so weird. How, how a story arc has such a big impact when you're the one just consuming it instead of the one actually thinking about it 
while you're reading it. That's such a weird way to view that. I I never really thought too much about it, but the more kind of think about it, I was like, that can have a giant, that's a giant impact. But too, like if they, a lot of it too is if they do a horrible job with the actors, then like it doesn't matter how close they hit to the original story, it just falls apart too. I mean, the actor doesn't, yeah, go for it. I say that's that's the thing that you know movies have that some mediums don't is that it, the acting it's I mean all the things play a part in it you can't you can't separate like you discussed in The Shining the music is so integral to that movie so oh, yeah. if you don't have that the movie's not the same but if you don't have the acting I mean it, it doesn't work out either you got to have I mean all the parts have to work together to make I mean and it, it's amazing we get movies that are just so great that they stand the test of time like Citizen for instance like i mean it you know it all those factors had to come together to make that movie because it's not like one singular thing everybody likes to always they they always focus on the director they always focus on the actors but it's the whole production that actually makes the film stand the test of time because without it you don't get the cohesive you know uh property that that you enjoy it is there really any other movies that nailed the the audio as good as the shining did the way that the scene cut and and stuff like that. I'm kind of curious if there's something that really hits it as good as The Shining did. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to, to think of it. I mean, now, you know, that's not to say that certain movies don't have, you know, like they didn't choose the, you know, Foley work and all that and the sound effects to get the, the, the you know, especially when you're talking about the older films where they didn't have like stock, you know, sounds to go along and they just plug in digitally to a lot of their movies. But, um, but I mean, you know, outside of just like just the, the work that they did in the background, it's, I don't think that there's any that maybe did it as well as the shining. Uh, we talked about the devil and Daniel Webster on one of the episodes of death holler. Interesting that for like back in the old days, they were more, and I think this is interesting. They were more experimental with some of their, their sound choices like when they introduced the, the devil in that movie, like the guy wanted some kind of weird, uh, like ethereal type music going on in the background. So he went and he actually recorded the hum of the electrical lines and, and like, uh, one of the places in California. And like, that's the thing they use in the, and they, they, they keyed some notes to it to kind of give it more, you know, musical sound, but they created that weird, that humming, uh, that they created, uh, adds like this weird supernatural vibe to, you know, in the background that plays to the, you know, the supernatural, uh, you know, element of the character whenever he appears on screen. And I feel like they did that a lot more back in the old days than they do now where it's just like, they got a, I mean, like the Wilhelm scream at that or whatever that they always do in like the films. I mean, star Wars in particular is the worst for that. Whenever a stormtrooper gets shot, and like they they've used that as you know like stock for years, and like you if you listen for it, it gets ridiculous the amount of times they use it in in modern films. Oh really? See, I didn't I didn't, I didn't realize that. I could see that. It's weird how that all those things are key factors into the immersion of the art that you're consuming. Because the whole idea, like when you watch a movie, it needs to be immersive. It, it can't be a fly by night type of idea. It has to be like all those movies are a fly by night that that like Hollywood tries to push. And if you watch it and the arc doesn't make sense a lot of times, it, it they fall flat with the average consumer because it doesn't translate into an immersive feel and where you become enwrapped in the story like, hey, this is kind of tangible. And well and it's it's and you you're trying to sell some, you know, like out there scenarios in a lot of movies too. I mean 
I'll take the example of like, I mean, it's not necessarily a film, but like, I mean, they're, they're going that way with a lot of, uh, you know, Netflix series and that sort of thing. They're, they're making them more film like the TV shows, but there was one on HBO max called, um, studio 11 that came out recently. And the plot of it is, I mean, on its surface, it's totally ridiculous. It's like the, the people who are left in this post apocalyptic world after like this super flu, uh, or like these uh, theater majors, professors, like drama students, musicians, that sort of thing. People you would never assume that would be able to make it in the real life. I mean, they would die probably within two years of the, you know, because they, they have no real world skills to help them survive. And that's literally, I mean, when you look at the cast or the people who are left over, the majority of that, there's a few people in the background that might have been like other things that had something that, you know, would have helped rebuild the, you know, the world after the apocalypse. But these are all like, I mean, they focus on the people who were just like theater majors. And it's such a ludicrous, you know, plot to begin with whenever you think of it in real world terms. But like the way that they sell you within that that narrow worldview within the, the show, you can suspend your disbelief for long enough to, you know, to have a good time with the story, which is the, the quality, you know, a good production. You take this ludicrous concept that, you know, uh, I mean, that, that nobody's ever seen or would believe. And then you actually sell it to somebody. It's like, okay, for this 90 minutes or whatever it is, you know, however long the runtime of the film is, you know, I'll, I'll put myself in this reality and accept whatever the rules are for this reality, you know, long enough to enjoy my time there. Yeah. As long as the story is, is, has a decent art. Yeah. But the whole, I, I think I'd have a hard time buying onto that just for the fact that the average person doesn't know how to do anything, especially, I shouldn't say the average person, but if you're tied into the 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 pipeline of what Hollywood is and you're engulfed in that, you're already living this artificial world already. So the moment reality comes crashing in on it, like how are these people going to sustain anything? They don't know how to do anything. Like, uh, <laughs> like, like who's going to fix the car? Who's going to be the carpenter? Who's going to provide food? Who's going to logistically move all the goods around? Like you start factoring all these complex equations and you're like, oh, none of them. They would be dead in a month. No water, no food, no nothing can be repaired. I'm just you start running these things down, and I that too. But what makes it even funnier if you really think about when people suffer serious strife, them are the people use you first on the chopping block because they're not of a productive nature at all. Yeah, I mean, with regards to Studio Eleven, I mean, it took a long time for me to get over that part of it. But at the same time, when they narrowly focus on certain characters. And the fact that, like, due to, like, satellites still being functional and, and, and some of the other things, they're, they're able to get, like, some of the, you know, like, information off the Internet to help them kind of function a little bit. They, that's where this, you know, they, they kind of build in the, the disbelief a little bit to where it kind of helps, you know, patch over those holes. Yeah, but who's but providing I, the I mean, power? Who's running the power station? Who's making sure the power is staying adequate? Like, there's all these other now real blatant issues of, like. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it doesn't. I mean, in the show's defense doesn't last that long it's just like while it's still like partially running one of the smarter characters have the idea let's get this information you know somehow yeah you know offline before the the internet goes away and and so i mean i feel like that's a real i mean you know nowadays a lot of people would probably have to do that because there's honestly not that many people who would know how to even garden anymore which is sad oh but, yeah you know, it's a, i, it's I a remember reality. one year we tried it in the backyard and it's a lot of work man i set up these uh uh, Terrence flower bed and stuff. It, it wasn't too bad, but like, even then you need decent area. You need a huge landmass to like, even have something <laughs> effectively useful for a household. Yeah. And, or, I mean, extremely well thought out hydroponics. That's the yes. only way you can do it. Yeah. But then at that point you need electricity. 
<laughs> you, so if you're doing hot, you, yeah. you have to figure you have to figure out how to get off the grid. You have to have like solar set up. You need the chemicals now. No, all of a sudden you need yeah. the chemicals. So you need pharmaceutical companies involved. All of a sudden, like you run into all these complex equations that you just take for granted. That these resources are there, and I don't know why, but they're there. I mean, if we're going to talk about suspension of disbelief, I mean, it's a side tangent, but it's got to be put in there. And I know you run into this with your profession, but, uh, you know, as a pharmacist, like any, uh, they always get medicine messed up in films. Like any time that I see, it takes me <laughs> out of a movie instantly. I don't care how well they set up the universe. As soon as they show some kind of medicine and it's like one that's a real world equivalent and, and they've got like these wonky directions, like take 12 or something of it. And I know that's going to kill somebody. I'm right out done. I'm, you know, it's, I'm, I'm out of it. That's a problem. You know, too much inside baseball. You're like, that sounds like bullshit. I'm sure you're the same way when it comes to any kind of like oh, stuff. Like you're working on vehicles. Okay. Here's a prime example of this. Like literally like a week, like two weeks ago. So my kids, I've been riding skateboards with them and everything. And I'll, I've been trying to watch more like uh skateboard stuff. Like YouTube's awesome. YouTube's a gold mine of like different skateboarders going around the world and skateboarding in different areas. And I was like, we should watch like a movie. It's like, fuck it. We'll watch gleaming the cube. I don't know if you remember that movie. I don't. Oh, so it's Christian Slater back in the day, like the eighties. Okay. So he's young as hell and he's a skateboarder. Is he still doing the Jack Nicholson impression? Because that's what uh, his first years that he was an actor. That's all he did was Jack Nicholson impression. It was the early stages of it. He, you could tell he was, he was putting in some leg work to really develop it, but but he was a young guy. He probably had to be like eighteen or something like that. Okay. So his so he has a he has like a, an adopted brother who's uh, uh, Vietnamese, and this is back like like right after kind of Viet. It's like it's like what is that? Like fifteen years after the Vietnam War. So there's a lot of that remnants that plays yeah. into the movie. Well, his brother is Vietnamese, and he ends up working in the Vietnamese market, even though he was raised by a white family that probably never taught him Vietnamese. And he very much what so it's this weird disconnect already. Like he has no tangible attachment to this community other than the fact he looks like them. So it's it's already like okay, I don't know about this, but but we're watching the part, and there's this part in the movie near the end where they're they're going after the bad guy, and he has the the tool for tightening the trucks on the skateboard. He just puts in the ignition and turns the ignition, and it starts the car. And I'm thinking. <laughs> Well, first off, that's not how that works because there's a tumbler in there that needs to unlock it. And for you to have enough strength is to put that in there at 18 and turn it and just turn the ignition without damaging any of the components. Like the mechanism that unlocks the steering column is insane. That doesn't work like that. It will never work like that. And I was just like, there are certain points like that in the movie. I'm just, I'm just started, I'm starting to think of it like the physics aspect of how certain things are being done. I'm like, oh, God damn it. Kids love the movie though. They're like, this is awesome. There's a point in the movie where he's holding on to the back of this guy's Corvette and they're doing 80 on a skateboard. I'm going to tell you what, skateboard technology was not that good in the 80s. Nowadays, yeah, you can go like 100 on a skateboard. But back then, those bearings would have came apart and he would have ate shit face plant on the asphalt, on the freeway, holding on to a Corvette. And well, was, the tangent to that, I mean, one, uh, one of my favorite films is Back to the Future. I mean, Marty McFly had the same problem when he grabbed onto the back of all those vehicles in that movie. Yeah, but at least he was on a hoverboard, <laughs> so you remove the well, friction. In the first movie, though, he was on playing skateboard, but they oh. showed scenes of the the vehicles he's behind driving like 
I don't know, like maybe 40. So I don't know how that would have held up even. No way. Speeds, but. No way. The, <laughs> the, the composition of the wheels back then and the bearings that they were and all these other factors, it, the mechanics of it weren't that good because nobody really invested to developing good skateboard technology until Tony Hawk really pushed it, pushed skateboarding on a cultural level, like big time. And it's even worse when you go back to the uh, whenever he does the whole. I mean, because those movies have those uh, the patterns of the repeats. Whenever he goes back to fifty five, and he basically takes that that old like pseudo skateboard where the kid got like the little cart that you know attached to the top of it, and he rips it off, and it's just basically like a flat piece of wood with like wheels attached to it. Yeah, the scooter. The same thing. It was a he, scooter, and yeah. he kicked the post off of it. And I'm thinking yeah. that would never work. Like that that thing was never designed to go fast at all. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> you know speaking of that like where in the fuck are the hoverboards you know here we are in 2022 i thought we were all in flying cars and hoverboards god damn that was a disappointment yeah that i mean the flying cars was the biggest disappointment when it comes to that and the, the sad thing is is that back to the future actually had got some things right i mean because like a lot of people don't realize those scenes where uh, Doc lays uh, Jennifer on the back or on that like trash or whatever, whenever he like, you know, uh, doses her with, with a trank, you know, like uh, screen. And uh, so that he can like get her out of the equation, actually laying her on the top of a bunch of laser discs. So that was them anticipating that laser disc would be an outdated technology, which is a pretty easy guess. I mean, because yeah. they were massive and you know, like who would, you know, want to stay with that kind of, you know, technology, but they anticipated that, um, they uh and and there's a and and the thing that I, I find funny is they kind of anticipated the weather part of it because they and the post op because he mentions in there's a line where he says that it's a it's it's great that the weather service is so accurate because they can you know count it down to the minute but then the post office is 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 so inadequate <laughs> <laughs> and in recent years like apps you know like weather apps are pretty they, they'll tell you right down to the hour like you know when the rain is supposed to be there pretty much and then like the the with a post office, who knows when your package will get. Or get even Amazon. So. Amazon gives you a guesstimation. Maybe tomorrow, maybe today. <laughs> it, or, or I'll tell you, like, yeah, the end of the day, you're like, cool, I got some time. And then all of a sudden you step away your house for, like, five minutes and it gets, gets delivered. You're like, okay. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just weird looking at media now. Like, you know what's weird now looking at media? It's seeing so much of the reality behind everything nowadays because everything's – you have a better pierce into the reality of like Hollywood. I think Hollywood's fucking doomed, man. I think that's a, they're, they're doomed. There's everybody knows too much about these people and how shitty they are that it's, it's hard. Like when these people start going out and, and, and processizing on that soapbox about how much better they are, it's a, you're a fucking, you're a pretender. Your whole job is pretending. So when you get on your soapbox <laughs> talking about how amazing you are, it kind of falls on deaf ears a little bit. You're like, you're not as badass as you think you are. If I know I'm an idiot and I know more than you do, you're definitely a moron because all you do is lie all the time. Well, it's yeah. interesting when you say that because I just read, and of course this is from the Daily Wire, you know, it's it's right-leaning, you know, extremely Ben Shapiro's uh, stuff, but he was talking about, uh, the, they recently quoted Goldie Hawn, of all people. She actually came out there and made that comment. She's like, you know, uh, I, I she said that she's specifically stays uh, non-political because she says she knows that the regular public is hearing celebrities, you know, give their opinions and try to force them on as fact. And I, I think that's great that she stood up and actually said that about it. Cause I mean, I mean, a lot of them, you know, they buy their own bullshit when yeah. it comes to that. I mean, they, they put that out there and they think that their views, the only view 
uh, Robert De Niro is one of the worst. Like, oh, the guys dude. Dad, insane in the last few years dude like i was a huge robert de niro fan now i'm like fuck that guy like <laughs> exactly. and, you know what it's not even his trump statements that turned me off it was his other statements about people in general that i was like you're a fucking moron you're like you live in a hyper bubble dude like shut the fuck up that's so yeah, they, you, you know what guy i like the most that's consistently i still to this day he he's always a badass and he's it's never really wavered in my opinion about him is kurt russell Exactly. Kurt Russell's a bad, he, badass dude. He, but he, he skews like middle of the road. I mean, yes. you know, he, you know, some might claim he's libertarian. I don't like not the libertarian party necessarily, but like, I mean, he skews middle of the road. He, you know, he sees the value and there's things on both sides at different times that are worth pursuing. And, you know, he realized that. And I mean, I feel like he's done the best of, of like, you know, not hyper polarizing himself one way or the other. Yeah, I think um, I, I remember one time he was on a morning talk show, I think is what it was. And they, they brung up guns to him and he was talking about guns. He's like, yeah, I'm a big gun, gun advocate. But like Kurt Russell is more of a classical liberal. He's like the liberal that when I think yes. when, when I think classical, like Democrat, not like what you get now, progressive, like a classical liberal about freedom, about you make your autonomy. Don't fucking push it on anybody. He's that. But in the interview, the guy was trying to give him shit about gun ownership. He's like, hey, look it. Guns have one major place in that that that's supposed to Americans are supposed to hold. It's a check mechanism. It's a it's a call on your government. And the guy's like, "What does that mean?" He's like, "It, it means whatever you meet, want to mean, but everybody should own this as a as a last call effort for something." And he's like, "What is it?" He's like, "I'm not here to say what it is. I'm just saying you should own one." <laughs> I was like, "Fuck yeah, buddy." That's yeah. That's a good way to. I mean, the people who know know when they and he doesn't have to. Yeah. You know, I mean, the whole thing about you know dog whistles or whatever. He's not. He's just saying you know you know what it's for. I'm not going to have to spell it out because anything I say is going to be taken out of context. Yeah. And like we've you know mentioned before, deep fakes and everything else. You've got to really watch what you say, or they'll you know, or even just I mean, if you say it in the wrong way, they'll piece it together on like. Uh, CNN, for instance, and like totally take it out of context and piece it together where it sounds like it's it's something totally different. Oh yeah, they, they'll sound they're a sound bite you to death. It's uh, it's like I was watching the other night. I was watching my cousin Vinny again, and it was like <laughs> that line from Ralph Macchio where he was like uh, he didn't know what he was being or being you know a, a question about, and like and whenever he they finally revealed to him that the clerk at the gas station was killed, he's like, I killed the clerk. I killed the clerk, and the way he said it, it was clearly a question, but they just wrote it down as if it was a statement. Yes, he was saying I killed the clerk, and I mean that's the kind of thing they do. I mean, yeah, they there's there's take no it out of its original context. There, well, there's no tone applied when you're writing something down. It, it'd be it's the equivalent of you listening to a comedian and then writing down word for word what the comedian did and say, "Look at this guy. He's an abhorrent, abomination piece of shit. I can't believe he would say this." Is it okay that he stayed in his private life, or was he on stage in front of like? 20,000 people trying to make them laugh. All jokes well, come from like, the same place. Sometimes they don't land. What's well, like the stuff they did with James Gunn a few uh, oh, a while dude. back when they tried to cancel him? They took those tweets he said, and they were clearly jokes. I mean, they were like off-color jokes, yeah. trauma jokes. Like we discussed how trauma or trauma, like, you know, how they, you know, the 
they were always trying to push the edge or whatever just for you know to to you know for that sake and he was like posting all these things like you know that were i mean if you read them out of you know the way it, it just straight i mean it sounds like the guy's a serial killer like killing children or something but like clearly <laughs> it was a you know just like this he was trying to get people to get a reaction you know it was kind of one of those things but you can't but you know if you just take them now and copy and paste them it's going to make him look a lot worse than he than he intended on. Big time. Did you ever watch the movie Video Drone? That one, I, I I think I've started, but I don't think I've completely finished. It, that one's kind of crazy. I believe that's Cronenberg, I believe, right? I think so. But it, if you watch it now, goddamn, if it ain't fucking dead on, holy <laughs> shit, dude, dude! The whole idea of how video indoctrination and propaganda will be the forefront of war. Like, he nailed it, dude. Like, like programming individuals. Like, the whole idea of mass psychosis, it's dead on with Videodrome. Like, it is so good. It's like, holy shit. There's so well, many good movies from the 80s that nailed that high idea. Well, it's funny, too, because the 80s, I feel like, was the perfect, probably the perfect time for realizing the bullshit that came before without, you know, creating a whole lot of more bullshit on the, the, the other side. But... I mean, like it was. There was a lot of them pointing out. I mean, going the other way, a lot of people now think of like left-leaning, you know, uh, propaganda. And there was, but like, even like if you go back to the old movies, uh, like Holiday Inn's one of them with Bing Crosby and Fred Astaire. Like that movie has a whole segment in the middle of it just talking about World War II and like you know patriotism and all that. There's a whole thing built into it, and a lot of movies of that time period did that which is an extremely conservative right-leaning thing that they used to do in movies way before Hollywood switched to the other side and started doing it the other way. I see. I, I, I never really viewed that so much as conservative. I, I viewed it as more as this war machine propaganda to a degree. Well, I, that's really what it is. But yeah. I mean, that's, you know, the side that it, you know, that they associate with it at the time. But yeah, I mean, a lot of those older movies have that propaganda built into well, them. Cause if you study con- conservatives and Republicans, like outside of what you got on a, on a politician scale as individuals, you understand a lot of the conservative movement for the entire, most of the majority of the movement of America was a lot of anti-war. It was a lot of isolationist. Yes. You're like, Hey, we should focus on making sure what we have here isn't falling the fuck apart. (laughs) And, And it was weird to see the switch where they, they were able to propagandize enough of their base to in the idea that war is this thing that actually serves a net benefit. But with but it's it, I always found that weird, like how like well, how good of a job they pulled off doing that. Well, and they propagandized propagandized them the right way because they knew that that base tended to value more traditional like role models and stuff like that. So they made it to where you know like if you you were a manly man, you know you you had you know worth as a man if you you know went to war and and fought and that sort of thing. Um, even to the point of like, I mean, if, I don't know if you've watched that, uh, the, the Mel Gibson movie, um, you know, where, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of it now. It's, it's just slipped my mind. Uh, it was a recent one had Andrew Garfield as the main character. It was about the, uh, the, the, the kid who was, uh, he, he was anti-war. His religion didn't really, you know, believe in it. Um, and, and, and like he, and because of the propaganda at the time, he felt like he had to go serve. And so he, he, you know, even though he didn't pick up a gun or anything, he, you know, during the whole time, and that was like his whole story, he actually ended up saving people on both sides, and he used his abilities that way. Like, he still felt like he had to serve because it was the manly thing to do to help his country out. Yeah, he's um, did a lot of really good – I don't know. Did you ever seen The Patriot? 
Uh, yeah, I've seen that one several times. Yeah, that's a. I actually like that movie because the whole time he's trying to rally against the idea of war, but at, at a certain point when when your country is itself is, is on the is on the front, then it, it, at at a certain point you're going to get wrapped up into it regardless of what's happening. It, it'll eventually show up at your doorstep when it's on your own soil, and that that to um, me that's more of a tangible cause where you sh- where you should be kind of rallying, but like anything outside of like this, I. I find it weird how people get wrapped up in the idea that we're going to go help another country like that. That makes me laugh so much when I hear that. It was a uh, hacksaw ridge is the movie I was thinking of that. He, oh, I that he see. Did. I haven't and, seen that yet. I I, I haven't, yeah, but I haven't watched it. It's great. I mean, it's got Vince Vaughn in it, who's also one of those ones who leans, you know, politically like in the middle. He's considered he actually labels himself a libertarian, but like I mean, it's like he plays like kind of like the the drill sergeant that you know kind of has like a after you know he gives basically Andrew Garfield's uh, Jehovah's Witness is what what the, the religion they were. Uh, gives him hell for the longest time for trying to be a pacifist in a war and asking why don't you just go home? There's nothing wrong with you going home and not serving. Um, you know, he eventually comes to respect him because of, you know, his stance and everything else through the movie. But it's really, it's a really interesting movie that, you know, that, that Gibson did because he's not glorifying war at all in it. He's actually going the opposite route and showing the horrors of war. And, you know, and, and, and you know, this one person who was trying to, you know, just save people's lives because he knew that that, you know, it was just going to be mass death on, um, all across the board. Well, not that, but if you understand what war actually does, it all it does is it, it devastates countries economically in the in the most hardest manner like if you understand that when you're leveling a city block you're not just leveling the city block you're destroying the entire economy the economy gets destroyed like what are people going to do for work now how are people going to exchange how are people going to barter you disrupt the entire transaction mechanism of accountability in your labor to be productive it gets you're removing it so now everybody got to figure everybody has to figure out what the fuck they're going to do to rebuild an economy and the average person doesn't know shit about economics. So they don't understand like they, all they think is dollar good dollars, how I exchange. And that's the, that's the end of the conversation. But when you go through an economic damage like that, think about it now, if that was to happen, everything's almost a digital transaction. If you remove the electronic mechanism or electricity from the equation, just for a couple of months, how does barter take place? Oh God, it uh, it doesn't. I mean, there's nothing that you have as a backup. I mean, there's no there's no currency that you can use at that point. Yeah. So now you're you're stuck in a position where you got to figure out how to exchange your labor, and that well, gets really too, tricky. The other thing too is specifically World War II that people don't realize, like you know, because of the way that the U.S. government, you know cook the book on the numbers is they they like to think oh well it, you know it helped us get out of the the depression really didn't i mean there's a lot of you know if you delve into it uh, how they 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 work the numbers it's about like what joe biden's done recently it's like they they ignored a lot of stuff and said we're, we're starting at a base of zero and of course all these jobs you know that we've created quote unquote uh, have like brought us out of poverty but they ignored you know like things that were already there to get their baseline and so that's where they come up with those gross gdp you know like uh, values but going what you were saying it destroyed even our economy because we had to switch from so much of our own manufacturing of like goods that households would have purchased to just goods that were going to help the war and so it completely changed the economy to where like if i mean like there was a lot of like goods like washing machines and things like that that people couldn't even buy for years because they were having to scrimp and save uh, every bit of like excess like rubber metal yes. and all that so they could resources it, you know 
for the war. I mean, so there was a lot of stuff that didn't get made that the public want, needed or wanted uh, just in, in the effort of supplying the soldiers. Yeah. Like if you to really start pissing, pissing, uh, piecing that apart, you'd understand that when you're, when you're building a war machine, not are you, not only are you over consuming on the resource margin that doesn't go to anything productive, you're actually stripping every available dollar in the economy out in tax margins to pay for the war machine. That, that doesn't fund on its own. You, you have two ways of doing it. You got the inflation and you got, and you got the honest way, which is taxation. Well, if you people can't bear the brunt of the taxation, you can just print it in, into existence. Then now all of a sudden, that debt needs to be serviced at one point in the near future. So then you're stuck in a position, how do you service that debt? Are you just going to keep printing more? Or are you going to try to handle the debt? Well, if you're going to handle the debt, in, taxes got to go up across the board. Taxes go up across the board. You're still having an impact on the people's ability to spend into the market. So you're, you're stuck well, then- in this weird area where there's no... There's no simple way out once you've now headed down that path. Well, and that's the theory, too, about why they took us off the gold standard was because as long as money was held to a certain standard that was finite, they they couldn't inflate the way they needed to to get the, the, the war, you know, coffers uh, filled up. So they, they moved us off of that to these fractional transactions that they could, you know, change at a moment's notice or whatever and use that as like this basically – fake money that they could use to, you know, uh, keep funding these wars that they've done repeatedly, you know, since World War II. Well, the biggest thing, too, is if you study the euro dollar, you under you get more of an understanding of why we went away from the gold standard. A lot of it wasn't a lot of us. Because you got to remember, after after Bread and Woods and uh, a lot of those other things that happened, we, we told everybody around the world that the dollar is the reserve because dollars are easy to move around. And the dollar is backed by gold. So you can transact in dollars. It's just as good as gold. Well, all those countries were having issues because they still weren't set in a position for industrialization and not only that, but they couldn't really sell a lot of goods into the market at the time. So they were feeling the pressure of, I need dollars to exchange with other countries. It was a whole pre-SWIFT era. It was before SWIFT came around. I forgot what, what the the original um, Swift pre-SWIFT was. But every country was forced to operate in dollars on an exchange. So you had your own currency in your country, but you needed dollars to interact around the world to settle trade. Well, if one country was running a deficit, you main, you ran the issues. Not only that, but if your country was printing a lot of money, then it also it also offset the margin of dollar uh, um, conversion rate. So a lot of countries were trying to call in their dollars into gold to help prop up their currency to a degree. So all of a sudden, it, it made a huge demand for our gold to be issued back out into the world to help prop up their currencies at the, at the same time. And that's when we were like, okay, we can't do this. Because the way we're going right now, everybody's printing a fuck ton of money. We're not going to have the actual amount of dollars to stand behind it. Because every time they're printing money, they need, uh, they need more dollars to, to help back it up. And the dollars were a direct correlation to the gold at the time. Like there, uh, Jeff Snyder probably does the best at breaking down what really happens in the euro dollar market. And around that time when we broke from Bretton Woods, a lot of that you, you run into the Cayman Islands area where a lot of the loans issued into the world market now come out of the Cayman Islands. They'll issue debt into existence off the, off the dollar. So it's a dollar that gets issued into the global market that doesn't actually come from the U.S. So there's the Cayman Islands can issue dollars into the market to exchange and it keeps liquidity moving on the dollar basis outside the U.S. Yeah, it gets super complex. Jeff Snyder probably has done the best of trying to break down how this system actually works. Because a lot of people get the idea that 
our dollars technically here are the things that need to flow out into the rest of the world. And after they broke Bretton Woods, they re they redesigned a lot of it and they were able to get private banking institutions like the Cayman Islands where they don't have regulations that can actually start issuing a lot of the loans. And that's when you run into the IMF stuff where they can actually issue currency outside the US that is dollars that we had no that we had no involvement in. And it's a way to keep dollars flowing for global trade to work without using dollars from the US. It gets wild when you when when you <laughs> yeah, it's it's super complicated. So when it comes to movies, uh, getting back on that topic, because I think that's what kind of what you want to stick to. What what was uh, one of the topics you wanted to bring up about the you know films and like maybe their effect on culture, you know, responses to culture. Video drone was was a really good one. It it ge- it gives you an early pierce into what was going to be happening when it came to video and video consumption. Because I don't, I don't know if you remember any of that movie at all, but a lot of it he's he works for the over the top network looking for the most next sensational thing to get people to watch in, in like pure disbelief about what they were putting out there. So if someone sends them a video of like a, a murder sex scene is what it is to a degree. Okay. But it, but it, it, it looks like real is what it looks. So like, Oh my God, is this? So the whole idea was to try to figure out who made this, but the, but the, but the video has ingrained propaganda into it. That's subliminal that, that hijacks your mind like a Manchurian candidate is what it is. That's the one thing I do remember from the movie. It seems like anybody that watched the what was on TV started, like, behaving weirdly. It's like their their minds were, you know, being taken over. Like, they were acting, like, I think at one point, like, if I remember right in the movie, like, there's people having orgies just because they, you know, randomly got sex-crazed after watching whatever was on the, you know, the film in front of them and just weird things like that, I think, are going on. Well, a lot of um, it, too, is you run, it runs into this weird area of this cosmic horror to a degree. Where all yeah. of a sudden, like his body starts to change, and he can manifest a, a gun from his stomach that's integrating into his hand. Like, there's all this. Like, he, he, he I, and the thing is, you're trying to understand if this is real or this is all in its head. You're, you, it, you start walking this weird area where all of a sudden he gets so hijacked, so you don't know if he actually just has a gun and he's and he's and he's visualizing in his head that he's actually pulling the gun out of his stomach. It gets really, really weird. It, it's, but it. But if you think about how easy it is to get someone gaslit that much where they start believing crazy things like that. Yeah, that's that's kind of got a vibe, although I don't think they intended it that way, of the Patrick Bateman character from American Psycho, where he the whole thing could be in his mind. I mean, the whole movie. I mean, because he's going around killing these people, and, you know, he's been totally propagandized on the way that, you know, that, that somebody of his, you know, station in life should behave, even down to, like, I mean, it, you know, he's, like, real particular about his, like, hygiene and, like, you know, the music he listens to, and he has to have, it has to be, like, the, the kind of music that critically is a claimed and all that stuff and it was the perfect send up of the yuppies of the time or whatever because they all kind of bought into that image and they had they had to stick to it and uh like he, and it's almost like his mind is rebelling against it because he can't see you know like he's he's his way of escaping the you know the just the drone lifestyle of you know being a corporate you know worker is to the envision that he's going around killing these hookers and stuff in the movie and it's like is that is that know, is that a hypothesis of psycho that someone came up with what that it was in his head or, yeah. you know, 
that was yeah, in his head. I mean, because at the end of the movie, like he he suffers none of the you know no consequences for anything he does, which could just be a send up of the fact that the rich never have to suffer any consequences. But like, I mean, there's a lot of the the movie that that hints, or I mean, a lot there's people that shows up at the end of the movie that he supposedly killed during the course of the movie, and you're trying to figure out why are they back? You know, did did he really kill them, or you know what's really going on here? So. It's uh, the, the whole psycho part of it could just be in his head that he's, which is just as bad because that means that he's dreaming of these things. He's like one step away from, you know, bringing them to real life, you know? Yeah. I, I was talking about them on the Friday show. I, I view the media now as like this weird parade that happens that never ends. It's this constant parade where we're throwing tons of money out and they're trying to make it as over the top as to, to catch as many eyes. But like, like I was making the comment earlier, like the podcast thing has really, just pull the top off that shoebox and you get to look inside. Like it, it, the media is like this thing. They're trying to, they're trying to sell you Fendi like pumps, but they're not showing you the shoes. They're just showing you what's in the box and they're putting all these weird labels on the box, but they never actually show you if the shoes are even in the box. It's just like, Oh yeah, look, it's this amazing product. It's this and that. It's like, <laughs> well, can we see the product? No, no, no. But it, it, yeah, it's go for it. Yeah, I was just gonna say that that's exactly what you're saying. That's a good analogy because they'll they'll show like they, they won't show the actual video unedited, you know, unedited at all. Like they'll show you the box. kind of real world thing. They'll they'll show you the the things around it. They'll show you the pundits who are you know giving their opinion, which steers you in one direction about how you're going to interpret it because that's that's a common psychological thing. If you see something without somebody else's opinion, that includes even movie reviews. Like if you go into a movie sight unseen without seeing any reviews on it, you'll form your own opinion. That's kind of like what I did with Resident Evil. I thought the newest Resident Evil was great. So did I. I, Ew, I thought the, it was hella good. But you read the reviews, and it's like it's being, you know, given dog shit reviews across the board. I mean, uh, the critics, we knew were going to be that way. But, like, even from the fans, and I was just like, what the, you know, what are they doing? But, I mean, if you went into that movie, you know, reading the fans' reviews, you'd already be predisposed to, to dislike the movie. And that's the way these, you know, the media is doing a lot of these things nowadays. I mean, they, they give you the, before they even show you the, the way they word things before they even show you the video is is got bias built into it. It's oh like yeah, the, the, it, we, they the way started. They choose the words. It's always started with the pejorative, and then we talk about yeah. the individual. Here's a pejorative attached to this guy, and now let me tell you about this guy. Like <laughs> exactly, and then like, you're predisposed. It's like you know this. The clear they said that this guy was this pejorative. So uh, let me watch it, and your 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 mind is they've already the gaps yeah that pejorative a thing. They've already give you a model. Now put this model in your head while we talk about this guy. But that's what it is. It, a lo- it, it's it's me showing you a shoebox with all the labeling on the shoebox about how amazing these shoes are. But we don't actually ever show you the shoes. We're, but we can show you the box <laughs> the shoes came in and all the labeling on it that supports it. Like these shoes were made so-and-so and they're made out of this. Can I see the shoes? No, no. But let me tell you about how amazing these things are. And it's it's weird. It's It's a sell without selling you anything. Of substance, and the thing too is, if you think about a lot of those guys that are on mainstream, they're they're all parade figures. They're all some guy that sits on top of the float that we, we we no one really knows who they are, but they know they're like a local person, and he must be amazing since he's on the float. So, you know, he must be really really good. Well, and and it's kind of interesting because I was just thinking about it, you know, even in movies, I mean, the way that the, you know, we talked about the sound and everything else, they use that to kind of get your mind subliminally to, you know, 
to to go a certain direction like whenever you hear like these dark cues in the music for the shining for instance around jack torrance's character he is being painted as the villain around that time so it's it's you know like even like the background stuff they 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 do around it steers your mind in one direction to i mean if they use a different musical cue he might not have been viewed in that light and that's and it's funny that the media you know, the news media of all things has taken that like, you know, and, and, and using it to their own benefit. Now they, they realize that people's minds can be, you know, molded by what's given in the context around what they're showing. You know, I'm wondering if this would work. I'm pretty sure someone's had to have done it. If I'm thinking of it right now, if you took the movie, the shining and then changed the music. So when you showed his wife, all the threatening music came around her. And then when it showed him, you did all the lighter music, like all the weird interactions where she's kind of like scared or whatever. If you switched it all and kind of built the whole narrative around her as being like, kind of like, like she's losing her mind. I'm curious how that would, how, how that would play out. I think it would work. I mean, because I mean, your, your, your mind is filling in the gaps. It's like, okay, this lighter tone is going along with him. So he's, he's obviously not the one that's the darkest of this relationship. It's, it's her at this point. I mean, it, it would, it would definitely steer you in that, that certain direction. That's just weird. That, that weird sleight of hand changes the optics drastically. Well, and, and, and they've shown it several times with horror films in particular. Like if you just change like the music in the background, it goes from being a horror film to a comedy real quick. If you put like this light goofy music in the background, I mean, it, what you're saying, Throw is so a laugh track on it. Yeah, or yeah, like if you take Jason and any time that he goes to attack somebody, you put like a laugh track or put that, you know, Gaffney Sacks that was on, you know, like uh, back in the Benny Hill show. If you put yes. that in the background, it's a total comedy at that point. It's, it's no- that's, I, I'm just thinking about that. That is, I, I think that's more true than people could realize. Oh, man. That's hilarious. Yeah, I, I know another one I wanted to talk about was uh, was They Live. Because that one has always been like a like one of my most favorite movies. Because that one kind of encapsulates a lot of weird things, encapsulate a lot of the conspiracy theory stuff and all these other crazy factors. Well, it incorporates that, and it's so politically charged that I mean, the the regular person gets some of that, but I mean, they don't really. I mean, it's really deep if you oh, yeah. really go into it, big time. Yeah, because that one, it's the whole idea of the. I, I think that's like, if I had to think of a movie that was really the red pill before the red pill was a thing, I think that's what it would be. It's the whole idea is like, you're living in this world that you think is one way, and then you break the veil just a little bit, then all of a sudden it becomes noticeable across the board. Like that one instance of something not making sense and short wiring the brain a little bit, all of a sudden leads to this thing where you start viewing everything in a totally different lens. Yeah, once you see it, you can't unsee it at that point. Yes. It's like from then on, you're, you you see that, and that's what a lot of the conspiracy theorists operate on. I mean, I, I listen to several podcasts on that, you know, and, and that's what they mentioned. It's like what you see, uh, in particular, how the media, you know, does their spin on things. You can't unsee the spin at that point. You you see the, the puppet strings. You see what they're yeah. trying to do. I know the big one for me, I, I talk about, uh, I used to talk about a lot in the show. It was, uh, I don't know if you remember, I want to say it was like 2002. 11 or 12 and it was uh i forgot who got uh who's a dude that they got shot by the cop after he robbed the store or whatever i'm trying to think who that was uh as a black dude he, he was a little bit younger guy but the, he ended up getting in an altercation with the cop on the in the street and the cop shot him while he was like while he was on top of the cop trying to beat him up 
Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. I mean, because that was the big one before George Floyd. He was the yeah. It was it was one. yeah. It was back like I want to say uh, I thought it was on 2011, 2012, but that happened, and then the black community stepped up and they start rioting and causing a lot of damage. And then CNN was was wasn't really covering that what was happening. There, there, there was like yeah, these people are unrest or whatever, but they never showed how much damage they were actually doing. And then all of a sudden, uh, this black girl came out, and CNN had the clip. And it, it was this is when YouTube was starting to really start starting to pull back the curtain on a lot of it. But the CNN clip shows a black girl crying, this and that. Like, you're destroying our communities. I can't believe you're doing this. Why would you do this like that? And they played this clip, and I was like, oh, that's hella fucked up. Like, you know, you're, you're destroying people in her community. And then somebody on YouTube got a hold of the full video, and they played it. And the full video is her, is her saying, why aren't we going to the white communities and damaging all these neighborhoods? Why are you fucking up our own one? <laughs> And I was like, wow, that's a totally out of context clip. And then, yep. I, and then, it, it, like, it started to run hot on YouTube, but nobody on CNN ever stepped up and owned the video. They just acted like that part of the video never existed. And that was, like, the first time I was like, that doesn't make any fucking sense at all. Like, that is, like, uh, like me and the old lady were, were, were pretty much, I mean, if you're in California, you're indoctrinated to the propaganda. So we were way more on the left, but I'm, I'm kind of a country boy at heart, grew up there. So I always have a little bit of underlying, like, skepticism when it came to some of that stuff. But even then, like, once you're in the Kool-Aid, you're drinking it and you don't realize it. Then all of a sudden you run across that and you're like, okay, this shit doesn't make any sense. Now now we're just blatantly ignoring the facts and not even addressing them. I think the the guy's name was Michael Brown. I, I, I think that might be, yeah. Yeah, it was Ferguson. It was the, the town, and it was the first instance of BLM, I believe. Yeah, you know, what, what year was that? Up. What year was that actually? Uh, let me see if it says. I remember seeing uh, that, and that just that totally like because I was kind of a Ron Paul guy to a degree, not a whole lot. I didn't I haven't I didn't really study any libertarian ideas, and and it was when I was just in the infancy of starting to study economics. I remember that 2014. 2014. 2014. Yeah, I remember it was probably about four years leading up to that. I was starting to study economics, and then that happened, and that like. That 100% turned me off to the Democratic Party like overnight because nobody was addressing it. And the media was just running it as though like this is a problem and there's nothing else. And then as time came out, YouTube was leaking all this stuff showing that it wasn't what the media was saying. And it fucking like I was like, fuck this. Like, what are we doing? That was weird. Yeah, I think I think at the time even, you know, I mean, I was probably more left-leaning myself, but I mean, and I was, you know, the Ron Paul movement and all that was kind of out there and starting up. But I remember the, seeing that and I totally bought into their narrative whenever they first came out with it. Cause I mean, up to that point, I believed what they were saying. I believed yes. what I was getting in the news. And then like you said, they came out with it after the, and there was all this stuff leaking out. And it's like, that's not the clip that I was shown. Like what, what are they, you know? And then you get the thing. It's like, what well, they lied to me about this what have they been lying to me all these years about? Yep. And then I all mean, of a sudden we start pulling. Cause everybody assumed that they were lying to us about nine 11. Yes. They came out with the, there was no weapons of mass destruction. That was the first crack in the armor of the, you know, the mass media. And then whenever, you know, the Michael Brown stuff definitely helped further, you know, destroy that whole narrative that they were always giving you the straight up news. Yeah. And I, I, I just remember watching that in a, I think it was. I think I think I just rewatched They Live like a couple of months prior, and the only thing I think of was like, "Holy fuck!" Like, <laughs> like this is a little too close to home. And all of a sudden, I was like, "If this one article was bullshit, I'm curious how many more articles were." And then all of a sudden, so I started going through the news, like 
the news cycle for like the last year prior, kind of looking at all the stuff that were big highlight items. And then I would jump on YouTube and see like the full context of what happened. And everything started to shatter like 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 a big old piece of glass. Like just it, it had a crack and all of a sudden all these other things were just getting thrown at it and just breaking and breaking. And I was like, oh, this is all just a hundred percent bullshit. It it was a yeah, giant eye opener. Yeah, it's like in the context of the movie that you put on the sunglasses and now you can see it. Yes. You know, all the little, you know, messages that are being sent to you, which, of course, back in the day, he used that to kind of make fun of consumerism and, you know, Reaganomics and, you know, the bullshit that was involved in all that. But um, it applies to so many other things. Well, the, the whole idea of consumerism, consumerism is a critical aspect for the system to work unabated without anybody challenging it because you're too busy caught on to the novelty of everything coming out. So if you're busy with the novelty of TikTok, the novelty of this, the novelty of that, you're not actually thinking about things and looking into them. You're just taking them on a face surface because there's more things that your brain loves from the dopamine hit. So you, you're, you're, you're bought into the consumer aspect of disregarding information and just taking it on a face surface so you can go just chase the dopamine hit. I mean, it's bad now. Yeah, I don't... I don't know if they, whenever they first, you know, the internet was first coming out there for consumer use, if, if they, I think they maybe thought they could get ahead of the narrative and kind of use it the way they always had with other media sources. But they're, like you said, podcast and, you know, YouTube videos, even though they're, they're tightening down on that stuff now. I mean, they're going the other, the other way, but at first they, they allowed a little bit more lenience than, you know, they, or they got more stuff got through than they anticipated. And that's why this stuff is getting out there now and why people are starting to question because they, they, you know, you can show the unaltered footage and let, you know, and people are like that, you know, why is this totally different what I'm being shown on TV, you know? So that's, I think that, kind of worked against them a little bit more than what they thought it would. And that's why now you're getting all the, the big tech censorship because the government's stepping in. It's like, we've got to control the narrative. We let this go farther than it should have. And they're, yeah. they're working hand in hand with them now to kind of reel that back some. But the thing is, if you understand, like you're probably more libertarian, kind of like more my side of the position. But if you understand how the idea of decentralization works, you understand that their their government's already lost at that point, you, yeah. you're stuck in a position where you're this big calcified institution that doesn't it, it, on top of not being able to make fast movements. You're rooted with all these old fucks who don't know how to open a PDF <laughs> and you're trying to combat guys on the cutting edge of understanding and not that. But as information becomes more fluid, people come, they get red pilled rapidly quick nowadays. It, it doesn't take these giant journeys because everybody's distilled a lot down a lot of the information about how these tactics work. So all of a sudden now you the decentralization of knowledge to, to identify these things and how they're said and, and, and how they operate, well, as it becomes more decentralized, it's easier to disperse the knowledge amongst the masses. So anything that these media corporations try to do or the government itself, you understand they're, they're, they're operating from a central position trying to rain down information instead of a decentralizing where you have specialized people breaking down the knowledge in a, in a more concise manner. And it's pretty honest and it can, and it can be verified and fact checked through more decentralized people on the internet. It's a verification process in its own right that, that has standards built into it where people in the community criticize it immediately. And those people can either ignore it or, or, or combat against it to, to hold the position of why this is true. And then let me explain it to you instead of just making a point and walking past it and never addressing why you were wrong. I well, think, and, and the other, 
Go for I was going to say the other thing is too is that because they have uh, it's got out there, and it probably is the reason you said they probably. Uh, the old guys in charge didn't know what they were getting into. They thought it was the same kind of medium they'd been using for years, you know, film and, you know, and radio and that sort of thing. They knew how to control those. And it, it got too far. The the horse was able to out of the stable as it were. And now that, now that they're trying to reel it back in, it's more blatant. The, the more they push, the more blatant it is that, yeah. they, you know, so Big they're time. making it worse. They're making it more apparent. Well, the thing they don't understand too, is they think cracking down on YouTube is going to fix it. And the problem is like, no, you, YouTube created the model. So now that the model is there of decentralization of knowledge, you, you would have to crack down every single independent company trying to decentralize knowledge. Yep. And every time you do it, it looks more and more obvious. <laughs> it just, it just shows your hand at that point. They yeah. would be better served to stop fighting it and then and find a way to work within the framework of what's already out there to try. Um, but I mean, that would require a whole new set of skills that none of them have. No, the and, and they I never mean, will. Cause the problem is the technology movements outpacing them by a giant margin. And yes. you got a bunch of people. If let's be honest, the average person that's a politician for the most part, isn't really an amazing person other than bullshitting <laughs> people. So it's that's not like true. they understand complex parts of the market. And not only that, but they're operating from a, a position of central operations. If you're in a position of central central operations, you would have to be the smartest guy in everything to properly the properly adequate the allocation of where stuff need to be sent and where stuff needs to be focused. But no one has that ability. Nobody does. Right. But when you decentralize it, you're now offloading the specialization to people in the market that can be criticized by other people in the market that specialize, that can be verified by other people who specialize. You have now decentralized the whole apparatus of, of confirming and verifying a check system, which it's almost impossible to do that because you don't got to you don't have to know everything, but you have to know your part of the market extremely well, and other people that know it too will can either confirm or deny what you're saying, and then you can kind of get a consensus of where these people are coming from. You can start looking. The best thing is when somebody says something, somebody stands up and says, "This guy's a liar." And then you jump on that guy's Twitter handle that called the other person a liar. And all of a sudden you see over-the-top shit like in the Trump, in the insurrection, January 6th. Like that's automatically you're identifying to everybody that you're kind of a fucking liar. Like you're yeah. you're doing – you're removing all the, the legwork to find out who you are and you're blatantly saying it out loud. So we all can almost immediately identify that you're refuting this person, but you're also a major piece of shit with no actual consistency and being objective about anything. Well, going back earlier to where I talked about Station Eleven, one of the, the few things that rung true, whether they intended it to or not, was the fact that in that post-apocalyptic setting, the actors ended up becoming the leaders in a lot of the positions because they were used to selling bullshit to, pe to people on a mass basis, and it made them specifically the best politicians or leaders for that world going forward because they were used to bullshit, you know lying yeah. through their teeth and selling yeah. the lie. So not actually kind of knowing either. anything, but just. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a central guy who doesn't really know anything. And, and they project and, this bullshit confidence, you know, because they're because they, they know how to sell that. But the thing is, like, when you when you when you run into a decentralized uh, information network, it doesn't hold up. That's the problem. No. A decentralized information network will fucking discredit you if you're a bullshitter like fast, especially nowadays. Think of how many people come out and say some stuff. And then everybody online is fucking doing the legwork right away to find out how much bullshit's wrapped up in you as a person. So it, yeah, it crushes your validity. 
And that's the reason I think Big Tech has set up those quote-unquote fact-checkers is because that was their way of trying to insert somebody in the middle to try to be the decentralized force that's steering the narrative in the direction they want it to go. But a lot of people have realized, and they've even admitted recently, uh, that they're opinion makers. They're not, there's yes. no fact checking involved. It's it's all opinion making at that point. Well, the big thing is the virus thing. The guy they put on Twitter and Facebook to kind of oversee what people were saying about the COVID was the same guy that worked for the NIH and had direct correlation to the bigwigs in it. And it was mm-hmm. he was moving the narrative on what they thought was liable. Like, yeah, that worked for a little bit. Then everybody found out who you were, and then all of a sudden they're like, <laughs> oh shit. But that's the thing is. Decentralized information networks are the best at stiffing up bullshit. They're amazing well, that, at it. Well, that's like whenever they first came out and they were going, they announced who got the contracts to make the viruses or the vaccines themselves. You know, they mentioned Moderna, and it was like you know immediately somebody released information that Fauci had financial ties to Moderna, and that right there, you know, was like okay, the, his the how you know, dare his, you? His, I've been with this company <laughs> since I did the exactly. AZT back during the AIDS era. What? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, his, his reliability and trustworthiness just went right out the window immediately. Cause somebody fact checked him on it. It was like, no, you got ties to this financially. See, you would, you know, definitely push them as somebody who, who should be able to make this. See the thing with Fauci, this, this is what happens with a lot of these fuckheads that are in these positions. They do these things where they, they get called out in their era and then time goes on and they don't make a bad call and they kind of let life, let like low fly low under the radar for a long time. And all the people of that era are kind of, they go away, they die, they, whatever it is. And then you have a whole, a whole new generation of people that don't know this asshole and they don't do the research because they don't know him. They don't know about him. Then all of a sudden he pops up on TV saying some shit and then they start kind of questioning it. Then they do the background on him. They realize, oh, this is the same jerk off. who did this shit back in the day. Like he's, he's doing the same thing now. I mean, speaking of that, let's go up the chain. Well, it's probably not up the chain because I think he gets paid more than anybody else. But yeah, four hundred thousand dollars a year. Is, yeah, uh, Joe Biden. I mean, you know, a lot of the newer, you know, uh, uh, age, you know, younger age people who voted for him, they didn't go back do the research, and now they're saying, well, he's doing this and that, and then all the older folk are saying, yeah, he voted this way back in, you know, yeah. like the seventies and eighties. Like, he has a consistent rack. Person. Yeah, he has a consistent track record of being a douchebag. What are we talking about? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Th- this is this is him. Like what? No way. Uh, it's like this old this the kindly old man who's like a grandpa said that he was going to get rid of my student loans. It's like he's voted against student loan forgiveness every time they get a chance. Consistently. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's so fucking funny, but it's it's weird to have that one moment of the veil being pulled back. This fucking you can't the whole thing of you can't unsee it at the, when that happens, and that's the part that's I, wild. I really enjoy it because I I think a lot of the younger generation who voted this time thinking that they were going to really make a change, the kind of the same way I felt back whenever it was uh, Obama versus uh, you know George W. Bush or whatever. I, I voted for Obama the first time. Yeah, so I did mean, we. I'll admit it. You know, yeah. I got sold the lie that he was going to change everything, and I got disillusioned. And now they're coming to the same thing, and I think it's a good thing. The disillusionment has to happen for people to you know, honestly assess the situation and say, listen, we're tired of the bullshit. Well, I think a lot of it too is I think white people are just really willing to give a black person a chance as president. Like, why can't he do it? He's, he's a yeah. human. He's no different than me. He's, he's saying all the right things. 
So everybody's like, yeah, we'll give him a chance. And he's saying them well. To give yes. that credit, I mean, he is a very good speaker, a very yeah. good speaker. Probably he, he, the best speaker we've had as president since probably uh, Lincoln, honestly. I mean, as far as being able to, you know, give good speeches and, and deliver them well. Well, it got to me. What got me is how much how much cover fire they ran for him when he was selling arms to uh, Mexico and shit like that. And not only that, but <laughs> oh, drunk, God. yeah, but it's like all that stuff got like Eric Holder hid the shit out of a lot of that stuff. Oh, and you mentioned Fast and Furious to people, and they're like, "Oh, you're talking about the movies." It's like, no, I'm talking uh-huh. about the, yeah. the movement where they, you know, and then they, they, it's like, you know, crickets, like that, and the drone strikes. They all got covered up, and like nobody. It's like my president didn't do that. It's like he did. Yeah, the media didn't cover any of it. Yeah, but that's so weird that that it it's because in California, like majority of the people, I think, were sold on Obama's first turn, I, I, hands down. Like, even Northern California where it's a lot more purple and red, like, even they were like, yeah, we'll give him a chance. I I, there's nothing wrong with that. And not yeah. that, but, I mean, his competition, I mean, uh, what's his face? The fucking old fuck from Arizona. What's his name? Um, uh, Not Romney, uh, but the other guy. McCain. Yeah, McCain. Like, dude, yeah. I, I watched that guy. I was like, this, no. 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 <laughs> you're, you're like, you're so old. And not that, but McCain came off as an actual hardcore war hawk, in my opinion. And, like, Obama was came off more of as a position sure. like yeah he sold the message like we're not going to be doing this war shit and like wrong we're going to be doing this war shit <laughs> we're, gonna we're just not going to cover it <laughs> yeah. totally different it, it's 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 doing the unseen part of it the only people that McCain sold his, uh, you know, that, that got on board with him were were the hardcore, quote unquote, conservatives of the time, because that's what conservatives conservatism was before, you know, it finally got broke after the, you know, uh, I, I, probably after Obama, honestly. But, I would say Ron Paul uh, did the best job of waking up a lot of conservatives to like. This war machine that you're standing behind isn't what you fucking think it is by any margin. Oh, he was I, the best at that. I th- well, I think George Bush did an amazing job of uh, breaking the conservatives for the most part. After they came out with the weapons of mass destruction weren't real type shit, after a lot of that stuff got uncovered, yep. it's like a lot of Republicans are like, fucking what? Well, and you you had the Republicans looking that way, and then when McCain came out, only the 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 Lindsey Graham's of the world were like, "Yeah, this guy's got it made," you know, <laughs> like he knows what he's talking about. And then everybody else is like, "Fuck these wars, we're tired of them." And then you yeah, know, and then and then of course we got sold a bad bill of goods with Obama, and then you know it went, but it was covered up. So a lot of people still consider him one of the best presidents of the recent you know modern era, and that's because. They just don't, they've not done the research. And yeah. I know that that's like a loaded term. It's like where you're getting your, you know, information from. There's legitimate sources out there. I mean, Glenn Greenwald is one of them. I oh, mean, he's the amazing. Yeah. Straight up news. And uh, like, he'll give you the, the straight dope uh, one way or the other. He won't like, he won't, you know, sugarcoat it, whether for conservatives or, uh, you know, Democrats. Well, you have a lot of those guys. And, you got uh, Aaron Mate. He's hella good from the gray zone. And then you have Michael Tracy. There's a lot of those lefty guys that I follow. If you get stuck in a bubble where you're listening to only the side you agree with, you're automatically in a in a fucking problem, because now you're doing this confirmation bias where you want to hear washing's easy. Yeah. Yes, I, I look for I look for the lefties that are saying things that aren't supposed to be said by their side of the aisle, because if a lefty saying something that's not allowed with the party line, then there there are there's automatically an indication that this guy is stepping outside the box. They say something that's not acceptable by all the fucking policymakers that are on his side of the aisle. 
And that's where Tulsi you... Gabbard's a perfect example of that. I mean, she's came out in defense of Rittenhouse of all things. I mean, yes. you know, Tulsi's definitely stepping outside the line, and that's probably the reason she got smacked so hard by Hillary Clinton whenever she was, you know, doing the campaign. She even, could be know, a Russian like, asset. Fucking what? The Russian asset bullshit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which is, if you want to go back, you want to go back and link it to films. It's funny that Russia has become the enemy again. Uh, the boogeyman. It's it's almost like uh, j- another John Carpenter film. The thing is being played all over again. It's like who's the secret Russian agent that's you know working you know yeah. to help Putin out now? Who's the bad guy? We don't know. The bad guy could be whoever we think it is. It you you fall in these weird mental traps where they're just trying to you're you're trying to break your your trust in your in your neighbors and you're trying to paint them all as bad people. So you better find out which ones are the bad people. And, and well, and that's been the media's mo for like the past, at least since 2020. I mean, everything they've done is to sow discord amongst certain groups because the government knows that if we, you know, you band together, you're a threat. But if you keep separating your individual groups, you're a lot easier to, you know, take control of. I mean, if it's blacks versus whites, men versus women, you know, well, uh, I, I, I mean, think that's the those. big reason that the identity politics is such a big push position from the left because you're you're forcing everybody to look at everybody through individualistic oppression groups where you, you can't get social cohesion when you do that. I mean, it's like yep. textbook marks. Like you just, you break down it, you break everybody down at individual groups and then you have them stay in that position. And then when you want them to be disconnected from each other, all, all you start doing is start playing to one side just a little bit. And then it breaks all the cohesion immediately. It's when a, the only cohesion you have is the government, you rely on the government. Yes. To, you know, that's, yeah. that's what they, they want. So Talking orders. It's funny you say the thing because that's like another one, too. That's a that's a subtle one. Like, unless you really understand the era, I think it for a lot of young guys, they look at it as a horror movie. But if you understand the era that it, it took place in, then you understand how more how much more that was tangible to what was happening on the world stage. That's the thing whenever you discuss that we're going to do this because I, I feel like a lot of the culturally relevant movies, the ones that really say something about the culture they're in, tend to be sci-fi and horror movies because they operate outside the fringe. There's like less of a focus on them. And underneath all the trappings that, you know, that, that a lot of people shy away from are the narratives that they're actually wanting to get out there. And they're a lot easier to sell, you know, to 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 get across than like, you know, because if they put them in any other movie, a drama, comedy, whatever, they tend to be heavy, heavy-handed messages. But when you yes. put them in like a sci-fi or horror movie, you can layer them underneath the gore and everything else, and they tend to work better that way. They, they they're they're subtle enough that they, that you get the point, even if you don't get the point. Yeah, see, it works good because because all those movies like the They Live and um the Thing and then Videodrome, their stories are weird and and they and they get a little messy, but the arcs are amazing. You you get the really good arc which sells you on the story, and that's the most critical part when you're telling a story if. If you can get the story arc good, you can put metaphors into the story arc and they'll land because the story arc itself is good. That's exactly right. That's that. I remember reading back in school, they made us read uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. And it's one of the worst pieces of shit I've ever read in my life. I've never heard of that. Hold on. What's that? It's it, it was actually a book that was uh, supposed to be a, a big critique of like the Chicago meatpacking industry at the time, and the guy was really he was pushing for like uh, changes in the way that the industry was run because it was really dangerous to the workers, and there were some valid points to what he was trying to do. But the problem is, is that instead of telling a good narrative and selling the the message within the narrative. 
he there's a point at the end of the book where he literally cuts off the end of the story, has the main character uh, abandon his family practically and sit in on a communist like uh, or a socialist, uh, you know, uh, propaganda meeting and sit there and listen to this guy's whole, whole entire speech about socialism. And that's how the book ends. Like, that's literally the narrative. And I'm like, that's why I, I hate that book so much. You could have sold that narrative that he was wanting to push, and he did effectively in the first, I'd say, three quarters, showing just how, like, I mean, there's like scene where one of the people slips and falls within a canning factory, and he gets, like, turned into the pickle juice, basically, uh, that they were canning, which is something that was really happening. And uh, all those horrible scenes would have sold the story, the narrative that he was wanting to push, but he had to have this whole entire last section of the book that was nothing but a socialist spree being told to the main character, and it was the most blatant push I've ever seen and that's where you break and totally I mean if you're going to sell the narrative just like you said you need to it has to be entertaining first and if the entertainment's there you can can sell what you're trying to sell that that arc of a character's complexity is such a critical factor because if you look at those three movies we kind of hit on the Videodrome They Live and then uh, what's it called and The Thing The Thing yeah they they all have a good story arc Uh, probably They Live probably has the least amount of story arc but the story in the context itself is what does it on that one. Like Roddy yeah. Roddy Piper is just a wrestler, but the, the <laughs> but he he's such a badass comedic guy in the movie that you you get rolled into his character from that angle. So you're it's it's kind of you're on a ride along with this guy like being red pilled as fuck like in in the most abrupt manner, and it's like you fall into the story trying to like holy shit like how deep does the rabbit hole go? I think the funniest thing with and what worked with Rowdy Roddy Piper was the fact that not only did they find out he had a great sense of com- comedic timing, which is you know rare, and I mean a lot of I mean look at Hulk Hogan, he sucked at acting. Yes, and that was one of his primary. Oh, uh, what's that? What's that one sub- <laughs> suburban one? The one where he was a alien or some shit. <laughs> you know what I'm talking. Honestly, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Though there was so many bad you know uh, movies. When oh, here's to, prime uh, example of that one that Jesse Ventura did, where he was an alien too. And he came to 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 the to Earth or whatever. That was such. I'm trying to think of the name of that movie. It was so fucking. It was right when he was starting to go bald, but he's still jacked from <laughs> from going out. It was such a horrible fucking movie. Uh, the only movie that I remember that Jesse Ventura actually did or turned in a decent performance was probably Predator. Yes, and it's not for anything good. It's because it the required over the top, you know, machismo acting from yeah. all the actors, and the fact that he delivers a line about being a goddamn sexual tyrannosaurus yeah. and sells it. And so it was, I mean, it that's that whole that whole part when he's him. in there, he's trying to hand out the chew, and everybody's like, "Get the shit out of my goddamn face!" So like, this show make you a goddamn ser- sexual tyrannosaurus just like me. Bunch of slack jawed yeah. faggots around here. Yeah, <laughs> that, that fucking that part scene. in the movie is like <laughs> this guy's a badass. Yeah, it's yeah, that classic what, but, fucking guy shit. But that's the that's what sold it was the fact that I mean he it wasn't because the guy could actually act. I mean you know he, but in the moment they needed somebody uh, they needed somebody who could do that sort of just over the top you know. Uh, macho character and and that's and he sold that part but yeah, but the whole cast uh, was right. the whole cast was just badasses in that movie oh yeah um just i mean across the board and i'm of course schwarzenegger that was one of his big breakout roles or whatever you know that sold him more way more than conan the barbarian or any of those because i mean you know it it had a wider appeal to audiences i feel like i, I want to say like how because i remember he did red heat prior i'm kind of i'm kind of curious what the time duration was between Red Heat to um, 
to the predator. Because he I'm did a fucking yeah. he did a bunch of badass movies in a short time span, like one good movie. I've, even the one with Alyssa Milano and Commando that was a badass action movie. Uh, Red Heat, according to Google, comes came out a year after Predator. So it was oh, the, it okay, was a year after. So he was so, riding the wave of that. Yeah, I, I think Predator really sold him to most American audiences. They they saw that and they're like, that guy's a badass. I yeah, mean, you know, a lot of people thought that from Conan, but like you know. A lot of just you know film geeks or and just geeks in general like Conan. A lot of people are like, I don't like that fantasy shit, but you know they like the big you know hulking you know let's kill some aliens you know while chomping a cigar guy. <laughs> and then of course, then of course it has that best line that he ever one of the best lines he's delivered: "Get to the chopper, get down, get to the chopper." Get down. <laughs> yeah. Um, but going back to Roddy Roddy Piper, I mean, like, it, I feel like he sold that role just because he gave that blue collar vibe in the movie, and that's yeah. what you needed from that character. Well, he was a carpenter in the beginning, or whatever the fuck he was doing. Yeah. So it, they automatically laid the grain, r- groundwork. And then if you're a blue collar guy, that's how you talk. Funny side note: so I was hanging out with my mom, my mom yesterday, and my mom's going back to work, and my mom has like, when we were younger, we were pretty poor and shit. And then uh, she used to work at, like, a TJ Maxx while she was, like, trying to go to night school and get her life back together and uh, moving on from my dad and stuff. And uh, so she, after she did, she got, like, a like a kind of a technical degree, and she kind of did – she was kind of like a administrator position at a, at a, a hardware chipset development company, like Johnson mm-hmm. & Johnson type shit. She worked for NEC, Hubert Packard. She kind of turned her entire life around. But she worked in that sector for so long. So, but now she's going back to work, and she works for a company that uh, I don't. Uh, I might offend somebody, but here we go. She works for a company that works with retards, and the job is <laughs> to get these re- retards to do remedial jobs, like putting boxes together and cleaning linen at certain companies. But it's for a company, and the company operates off subsidized um, um, government dollars. And she's trying to tell me how these people are productive. It's like retards aren't productive. These people have like a 60 IQ. So if it takes 10 of them to do a job, but they but they only putting out a fraction like an eighth of what a regular employee works. So if you were to hire a guy with this a 90 IQ that can outwork every single one of these people, paying for one employee is going to outpace paying for 10 employees that are unproductive. And so well, I mean, it's it's going for a good cause this and that. I was like, whatever. And then she was going on about this late so my mom's kind of like a staffer. Well, she'll do some of that line labor work too. But the main mm-hmm. job is for her to oversee to make sure that they're doing their job right. Where there's other staffers she works with, and one of the other staffers that she works with that oversees these people too, they're trying to do this job where they're putting a box together, and my mom's trying to follow the directions like verbatim. And it's like, you're putting a box together. Like, it's not rocket science. So the lady is like getting shitty with my mom because they have a quota of these X amount got to get done. So the lady snaps on my mom and says, look, it's stop fucking around. Just fill this out, sign this, put it together, be done with it. And my mom got so fucking offended that she would talk like that. And so we're at breakfast and my mom's talking to me. I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? She can't talk like that at work. I was like, yeah, you fucking can. You're working in a blue collar job now. My whole day at the shop is us talking so much shit to each other, trying to make someone cry before the day ends. I was like, that's how it works in the average job market when you're doing blue collar work. So that's yeah. not how it's supposed to work. I was like, yeah, it is. I was like, you showing up acting the way you are acting is phony as fuck because that's not how you act in real life. She's just acting how she acts in real life, and you don't like it. So, but you can't do that. I was like, yeah, you can. You're thinking she can't do that. The reality is, no, people do act like this in blue-collar fields. 
I'm all, you're just so disconnected from doing your white collar job that you don't understand how the average person operates in society. And she didn't, she's I like, that, I don't know. She's I don't know about that. I was like, no, that's super true. I think that's the reason there's so much, I mean, it's another side tangent, but I think it's the reason there's so much uh, turnover and issues in retail is because it's a, basically a blue collar job, but they expect you to uh, be totally fake when it comes to like, Customers, when somebody comes in and they're giving yeah. you bullshit over something that you know, you, you look right at them and you know that you didn't do what they said that you did. Like, oh, uh, he gave me the wrong, you know, this, that, or the other, and you know exactly what you gave them. You can't call them out on their bullshit like you would normally do in a blue collar job. You're expected to be above all of it, and, you know, and to say, I'm sorry, sir. We'll, you know, take care of this, blah, blah, blah. I believe that's the reason that, that because it's you're you're not getting paid anymore to do it in a lot of cases, and you're you're having to take all this bullshit that you would not take if you were in a blue collar setting. Yeah, big but time. You're doing a blue collar job. Well, it's funny because like talking to uh, on the Friday with my protege from work, the guy that I trained to take over kind of my job. Um, but he, they used to laugh all the time. I used to get kicked out of customers' cars all the time because I would go into road tests, and people would become <laughs> assholes. And it's like, hey, fucker. <laughs> I'm not office space. I will fucking say some shit right back to you. I remember this one guy we were road testing. He kicked me out of the car. I had to walk back to the dealership. It's like, fuck you. You're not going to talk to me like I'm a piece of shit. Go fuck yourself, dude. He's like, you're an idiot. I was like, you're an idiot, and you don't know what you're talking about, and you're trying to make me agree with you. I'm not doing that. Get out of my car. Fine. I'll walk my fat ass back. I need it anyways. <laughs> like, I don't give a shit, dude. I, I don't understand, I mean, why people think that that's something that, that people should take in general. It's like, you know, that's, that's you talk about propaganda, that's something that's been built into that career, you know, retail for setting forever. It's like the customer's always right, and it's like, no, they're not. Like, no. They sit there, and they're deliberately lying to you and saying that you gave them, you know, broken or damaged goods, and you know that it didn't leave your possession in that, that way. You're just supposed to suck it up and, and lose money because of it. I mean, that's bullshit. Well, you know? I think a and, lot of it ties into the, the discount happens with people that have never did those jobs so anybody who oh, hasn't yeah. dealt with shitty people trying to bullshit my, <laughs> my mom's name is karen and she's a fucking total karen and we were sitting down <laughs> eating breakfast it's like god damn you're a karen so why would you say that i was like because you are you're the worst person to deal with because your number one move all the time because she said she's all when, when the lady was talking to her she's all, i was gonna i told my supervisor i was like yeah you did you're a karen you probably want to <laughs> talk to the manager when it never goes the way that you want it to go and my mom was like, I can't believe you would say that. I was like, yeah. By the way, she's she's supposed to come on the podcast this Friday. So uh, it's like one of the few people on the left that I can get to come on that will stand their ground against me. So she's supposed to come on this Friday and uh, do the podcast with us. That's that's going to be interesting to hear it. Believe it or not, I mean, most people don't realize this. It's good to have the dissenting opinions. I mean, because you can't, like it's been pointed out, I think, several times by Jordan Peterson. If you don't understand what the other side is saying, how can you form a decent argument against what, you Correct. know, to, to fight that? Well, it's weird. I, I've learned kind of doing the podcast and just talking to people and, and driving Uber where you have thousands of interactions. And the majority of the people I picked up driving Uber were on the left. So I got really good at identifying when they're talking about something that they don't have a clue what they're talking about. And, oh, no. And in the beginning, I used to go for the throat as soon as I sniffed it out. <laughs> and then over time, I learned, okay, I, like, I can't go for the throat because my goal is to change their mind about something. So if I bite their fucking head off, it doesn't do anything productive. So I got really good at just kind of setting up subtle metaphors about the way you should view something. And I don't know how many people mind minds I changed, but I know I had impacts in the way they viewed stuff. Which is, that's all I'm asking that, for. 
Yeah, I think uh, Dave Smith, he's got his own podcast, Part of the Problem, and he also is part of Legion of Skanks, which I know you've listened to. Oh, fuck, that's my favorite show, dude. Yeah, and he points that out. He's like, you know, people always give him shit. It's like, why you didn't go? Why didn't you go harder against this left-leaning person or right-leaning or whatever? And he's like, listen, we can't change minds if we're sitting there just attacking them and constantly attacking them. We have to at least give them, uh, you know, like some, you know, uh, agree with them to a certain extent, meet them part of the way, and then try to bring them over to your side. But if you keep pushing, they're just going to go farther into their echo chambers, and they're not going to listen to anything you say. Well, the push can happen, but it needs to be subtle. It needs to be on the position that they don't realize is a push being applied. And it, it yeah, the best it way, be yeah, the best way, like Jordan, one of the big things to take away from Jordan Peterson kind of following him is the whole idea of storytelling. You got to be able to tell a good story and not just a story, like a bullshit one, but a, a representational of an idea, but you need, it needs to be tangible in multiple aspects of the story from fi- that the financial to the rational, to the empathetic side, to understanding people. If you can take an entire story and mold it into a legitimate tell, that hits on multiple fronts of the human condition, it holds way harder than me just saying socialism is good because it allows people to be free. And it's like, well, it actually does the exact opposite. And let me explain why. Yeah, well, that goes back to what we were saying when I was up in Sinclair and then selling the message like in the Carpenter's movie. The, you've got to have the narrative there. If the narrative doesn't exist and, you know, and you're trying to operate totally outside of the, you know, because people learn, like Peterson says, people learn more by stories yes, than they do. Yes, it's despite. super critical. That's why when we do the podcast, I try to use it when I'm trying to explain something, try to wrap it up in a metaphor because then you can actually abstract the model that I put forth. I mean, even if you go toward the Bible, I mean, Jesus spoke in parables. He told stories to get his messages across. He didn't say necessarily, you know, outright. I mean, you know, it, it, the message boiled down to that, be good to your neighbor or whatever. He told you a story about somebody being good to their neighbor and kind of sold what he was trying to get at with that story. Well, not that, but the uh, whole idea of being good to your neighbor works on multiple fronts for the fact that in, in a major city, it doesn't hold up as good as it would in a smaller town. But the idea of being good to your neighbor is you never know when you're going to have to exchange in a barter system or or labor trade or something weird or rely on them in any facet. So if you're not good to your neighbor, you no longer have the ability to reach out for for hard times. Well, and, and the smaller the community is, the more so that, that makes a difference, especially if you get down, like Peterson talks about, like villages and, you know, like, you know, even groups of people, I mean, smaller than that, I mean, if you if you're excised from your community, you ha- you don't have the support system, and the smaller your group is that you th- that you have, the more you need that support system to to kind of like fill in the gaps for whatever knowledge you lack or skills you lack or you know even just the resources. Yeah, and this I mean th- that's where the whole idea of a libertarian idea works and anarchy works a lot better because at that point you're now relying on voluntary interactions. You don't go you don't got to so much agree when you live in a bigger city. It's no longer an agreement on things. It's an agreement on free interaction with each other. And if everybody can freely interact and apply the NAP principle where you're not pushing force on anybody and everybody's freely choosing their direction, then you can get more of a broader aspect of applying that. But but you're still having a disconnect due to the hyper-individualization you get out of a city. So you run it – the idea is good in principle, but it's hard to scale it sometimes when you move into a high population area. Well, and the higher the population, the more specialized people have to be too Correct. in their own individual roles. So that limits 
how much you can really help out. Like if somebody comes to you and they're like, well, I need help with this, or, you know, like say gardening or something. Well, if you're, you know, you know, you're an engineer, you probably don't know jack all shit. You know, maybe something tangentially related to that, but it's not going to help. Whereas if you're in a smaller community, you got to be kind of a jack of all trades or you're Generalist. not going to survive. I mean, yeah. Well, the Brett and Heather Weinstein's book hit on that a lot. I've been reading that. And the whole idea is like, depending on the situation of the, of the culture and the society itself, there's certain points in the time era that you're living in of the community that requires certain skill sets, like certain skill sets require specialization only. And then certain skill skill sets require a general application of multiple things that can be applied to multi-level because you're filling all the, you're filling in all the gaps that require specialization, but you don't have enough people to fill the gap of specialization. They're the ones that are over the dark horse part podcast, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm a, they've I'm, got a lot of good information. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of them. It's, it's, a lot of the stuff they do is rooted in the idea of uh, cultural evolution, like the idea that your brain is the actual mechanism of evolution and not your genetic structure itself. Is you, You're such a badass thing as a human with a niche ability to modify your software to fit the environment. And so we don't got to actually change our body structure. We just change the way we interact with the environment around us to fit the need that we need to fit. Yeah, and, the, and they, they she talks, I know her in particular, she talks a lot about that stuff about like how the mind can, you know, kind of adapt and how, I mean, she brings in a lot of the scientific stuff about how like, you know, your, 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 your mind switches off certain things and switches on certain things based upon what it needs to know at the yes. time. And it, it functions at the lowest possible energy level it, it, it takes for whatever the given situation is. So that's why there's a lot of background noise that you always, you know, that your body, you know, for example, tunes out just because it's information that the brain doesn't need. It doesn't pertain to what it's using at the time. So it filters it out where, and that's one of the problems with like uh, autistic, you know, uh, children in particular, they can't filter that out because their brain's just accepting everything in all at once. You know and what that, I, I, the way I view a lot of autistic kids is they're specialized, their specialization of a sector of the market to me. Like, cause a lot of autistic people, will hone in on very niche things and it creates a specialized super well. Yeah. Like, it, it, to superhuman ability. Yeah. Like Mike talks about it when we do the show, he said like autistic people are a specialization mechanism in their own right. If you can, if you can direct that and steer that ship in a way, because autism is a spectrum. So you'll have people that are hundred percent. You can't really do a whole lot with. And some people that fall in this area where they, they can zero in on a, on a thing that they have an overwhelming amount of, of interest in that, that they can't explain, but they can get really good at things. So it creates a specialization of being really good at these niche yeah. things in the market. The idiot savant is what they used yes. to, you know, label it. I mean, they, they get hyper-focused on one particular thing and you cannot beat them at that thing. If they're well, that, I mean, they're better than you at that and will always be better because yeah, that's like Tesla. <laughs> like you ever read the biography of Tesla? I not no I have it but I need to because he is very interesting. He used to leave his daughter at like 6 years old on the beach cuz he had an idea and he would just leave. <laughs> this is in the middle of this is in New York where there's a fuck ton of people and he would get up and leave her at the fucking beach cuz he had an idea. And she like like her 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 account are like, "Yeah, I'd be playing and all of a sudden my dad wouldn't even be anywhere." I know like there was one time she didn't even know where she was and she had to figure out how to get back home. So she was like asking a ton of random people. It's like, what the fuck? That makes you wonder how many people throughout history, the 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 most famous like inventors in particular, like Da Vinci and that sort of thing, 
if they were on the spectrum, like if you would have considered them, I mean, I'm sure at the time that they were like, they did weird shit that, I mean, Van Gogh in particular, everybody talks about how oh, yeah. insane he was, but I mean, you know, like I'm sure that he had like a version of that. Like, I mean, he, you know, well, did you think uh, of Mozart? Mozart was, uh, was, was deaf, wrote the best music. Yeah, he could sense the vibrations and know what the vibrations equivalented or equivalent to as far as musical notes. Yeah, he, that's he, insane. He he could calculate in his head by looking at the notes what they would sound like, without even hearing it. Yeah. Like, could you like wrap your head around that idea? Well, the guy that, that couldn't he hear like, wrote the best music, and he would lean over the piano just so he could hear like how it vibrated, like whenever he went deaf, just so he would know. Like, I mean, he would equate that to how the sound would be, and that's how he wrote a lot of those once he went deaf. That's crazy. But when when you think about that, you understand the idea that Brett and Heather put out how how amazing it is the human mind is. It's this weird sense making apparatus that has a lot of intuitive stuff built into it that can be modified through different ideas of thinking about things. It, it gets super, like, I'm super interested in what makes people's minds move the way they do, the older I get. Well, that's one of the things, I mean, you know, about that helped humanity, I mean, throughout time was the ability to adapt to whatever the situation was. I mean, it, you know, if, like, there was one point where they said, like, the human population got down to some ridiculously low number. It was like five to 10,000 people total on the whole planet. Oh, yeah, Bronze Age, of, the Bronze Age yeah. era. And I mean, just the thought of how empty the whole entire planet would have been, you know, like if you were just one of those small clans that was like huddled together around a fire, but you, your mind adapted to the situation and you just, you, you dealt with what was ahead of you. And then once, you know, everybody gives credit to the Renaissance, but they were at a time period where the humanity had expanded out enough to where their mind could start adapting to other things and start going more into art and that sort of, because they didn't have to focus on the survival aspect as much as they did. See, they put forth a, a pretty amazing idea is the idea of, Evolution happens in a weird constraint. An evolutionary pressure happens under the environment of pressure environments around you. So if if you could find a way to, to apply that to your mind, what happens? If you can put the the idea of thought pressure upon your head, all of a sudden now does it? They they a lot of other scientists kind of put this out there too. But I, I'm curious if that that um that need for Cognitive, cognitive change inside of our software was do, done through the push of evolutionary, I mean, environmental pressures where there wasn't resources to pull from. So all the pressure got applied to the individual's gray matter, and that's what helped boost our ability of the frontal lobe. I'm curious if that we, we, we got a genetic evolution on our brain due to the pressures that there wasn't a big environment to pull from, and all of a sudden it put enough pressure on our, the way we think about things that forced the brain to kind of modify itself and gave us that big leap that we needed to start developing a lot of these things. Well, I, I think a lot of the evolutionary science points to that specifically that, you know, they talk about how that was the environment that whatever ancestor, you know, link or whatever that started humanity. Like, I mean, they, 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 they was there physiologically, they were not the top of the food chain. So they had to have something that and the pressure of being in that environment pushed them to be able to use their brain more and to be able to fashion weapons. And that was the start of everything, you know, from that point on the, the, the fact that they, they did not have the leg up on anything around them. In fact, they were probably the worst at about everything other than maybe running. And even at that, you know, the, the cheetahs and all that still beat us. So, I mean, you yeah. know, we, we were middle of the road when it, at best on anything, 
physically, and then the brain had to overdevelop to be able to make up for that, you know, to survive, basically. Yeah, and, and we suffered the benefit from the brain's ability to, to do all the heavy lifting on the evolutionary side. Instead of us genetically changing our body through evolution, the brain is like, no, we can just adapt our software just a little bit and make giant strides in everything we do. And that yeah. might be the reason that humanity is pushing more toward technology and AI is because we're naturally, our brains know that like, you know, physically we're one of the weaker species on the planet. And we we're constantly trying to find some way of, you know, removing our, our mental abilities from our physical form and into something else that might be able to, you know, uh, stand the test of time basically. And that's the reason we're, we're going that route. That could be the reason why we're, cause it's a proven fact. I mean, a lot of uh, that we're more and more, we're trying to offset every bit of our, you know, physical, uh, physical stuff. Yeah. Uh, stuff in order to go into like a mental space, going to like, you know, like the virtual reality worlds and stuff like that. So, you know what? I, I don't know if you ever listened or followed Terrence McKenna, and, uh, but he has the the theory, the stoned ape theory. You ever, you know who Terrence McKenna is? No, I haven't heard of him. Big psychedelic guy, one of the guys that was pushing um, a lot of the ayahuasca and DMT and mm-hmm. uh, and everything. But he, he had the idea that uh, the stoned ape theory is what he kind of put it out there. The idea that when we took a mushroom or any type, I, you, I, I imagine you haven't did any of those things before, or have you? I haven't. I, I know the science of them, and there's actually a lot to kind of, I mean, even though it's been pushed, I, I, I mean, there's a lot of pushback from obviously against it from big pharma, but because yeah. they can't make a lot of money off of it, but there's a lot of, you know, PTSD can be treated with it. Uh, there's a lot of, I mean, uh, uh, you know, the, the, I think Jordan Peterson calls it like the God feeling or something like that, where you, it's you not reach so spirituality. Much, it, the spirituality thing is, it is a subset that you, you'll get from the experience, but a lot of it, what you get, it, it does this weird thing when you take a psychedelic, like if you have a thought, the average person has a thought. It's very linear in the way you can approach it and think about it. Yeah, and at a certain, it's it's, a, it's like a straight line. It's focused in one direction. Yeah, but but the problem is a lot of times when you have a, th- a linear path, you're not allowing other thoughts to fold into it to make it complex. Well, the yeah, the no, thing no, is no. when you take like a psychedelic or anything, what it actually does, you pull from multiple aspects of the way you've had experiences or your knowledge. And you can consolidate a giant chain of ideas to rationalize and understand how certain things trajectory had worked. Like Audius Huxley was a big guy that took a lot. Same with Carl Jung. A lot of these guys that were old school philosophers and wrote a lot of good material. Like you ever read Young stuff, the Red Book? I haven't read it. The only thing I know about Young is what you know Jordan Peterson. You know, yeah, uh, you know, Young was about, yeah, Young was a huge uh, psychedelic guy in uh, Alawaska. But same with Audius Huxley. But Audius Huxley wrote Brave New World back in like the 40s or 50s. I'm trying to remember when it was. But he nailed exactly what we're having now. The whole idea of the of the technocratic society micromanaging every individual in the state right. knowing better. But the but to see that that long ago, you had to you you had to have a complex of understanding the trajectory of humans. And a, and a, a lot of what those drugs do. Like anything in excess will have long-term nasty ramifications. But anytime you expand your mind once here and there, you can kind of abstract complex ideas and chain them and get a, a, a foresight of the potential curve of where everything's heading. And I think that's what a lot of those things do. Like a psychedelic will break your framing of how you're viewing things with a fucking hammer. It'll come through when you think a certain way and then it'll just take a hammer and break it. And then you got to try to make a better understanding of 
why you thought the way you did and understand why, how bad it was. That's one of the ways that they say that treats PTSD is because your mind gets hyper-focused on that one event and like it can't get out of the, like the prison it's created for itself. It's a continual loop. And whenever you take the, you know, the ayahuasca or DMT, your other parts of your your mind are able to break into that, break you out of that prison. And you're able to actually see it from another angle that, that allows you to distance yourself from it. You're not like right there in the middle of it. And that might be, there might be a physiological form of that, that some of the like most brilliant thinkers in history, like Einstein had, because the guy didn't think like a normal person. Like whenever you would sit there and talk to him, like his mind was off, you know, like doing different things. And that might've been what was going on is that like, maybe like the brain chemistry was off, you know, off in a good way in him that, that where he was experiencing micro bursts of what, you know, you'd get from ayahuasca or something like that. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking too, because when you see it, you see a, it's, it to explain to somebody is you're explaining the unexplainable, but like Terrence McKenna makes an argument. Like they took these things and they were able to abstract ideas that were no, that weren't even there. Like the idea of language and writing, like it, it, it takes such an outside the box thinking to even put together the ideas. I'm going to write some stuff down and we're going to start developing language. Why? So I can share my knowledge with you. Like if you understand how, off the reservation that thinking might have been prior to <laughs> yeah. that like think about it, you're a bunch of apes living off menial existence is being scavenged because most humans were scavengers for a majority of our uh our lifespan before we started developing culture writing and, and all these other things but that that had to be the guy with the first idea of putting pictures and stuff in the, together is wild well, yeah, the, the, you know, they, they, and the weirdest thing is whenever they talk about like the cave art, like being the first thing that humanity ever, you know, did moving toward like a written language and, you know, abstracting, you know, real life things and putting them in a different form. It was like, it was almost unanimous. So like it happened across the, in multiple places across the world at different, at the same time, places that didn't have any connection to each other. So that's kind of a weird phenomenon that, that the way that it happened that way. And, and you, you got to think like what, you know, caused that, but you're right. It's like, how do you take something that's never been conceived before and like, you know, put it, put it into an image, you know, but like, not I mean, but teach animal, people, basically. you're trying to teach yeah. people something you thought of, of a way of sharing <laughs> knowledge. Like yeah. I did think about, cause the weird thing too, is when you look at a lot of this cave art, there's always pictures of mushrooms and weird shit in them. Yes. So the whole, like I, I know a lot of the people from South America from like four or 5,000 years ago, they're finding remnants of psilocybin and different thing in their marrow of the bone. Cause it's still, you can collect data from there and they're finding out they were using this back then. And I, I'm always curious if somebody, if the idea of Terrence McKenna, somebody did take it and it disrupted the way they were processing this information and they saw outside the box just enough. Well, when you're talking about small enough groups, I mean, there was always the medicine person and a lot of those like smaller groups. And they, they were always the ones that were experimenting with, yes. you know, things like mushrooms they were the wise people too they were the ones everybody came to for information so it's kind of interesting that they were probably getting their information you know and all this abstract thought that was helping out their like little clan just because they were you know expanding their mind and that's how they were kind of doing it yeah i always i always get curious it'd be awesome if we could see the origin point the origin point of writing because if you think about writing and and reading and pictures that's like the first form of like video like storytelling like you're in a cave, there's a fire. I'm serious. And then the shaman's writing pictures on the wall. And not only that, but once you develop language, you can now tell a story and pass down linear knowledge within that cave group. 
It's a giant yeah. thing. Like to understand what that really means, even if it wasn't words and it was just pictures, just to pass down that, like, because you can just in a small story, you can pass down a ton of knowledge. Like the whole Bible is the prime example of how good storytelling is, has the ability to pass down core things that are beneficial to a culture or society. And even hi- and historical facts. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was funny too, what you're talking about. I, and I don't know if this is true or not. I've, I've tried reading on it and it's, I've heard it's kind of debunked a little bit, but there's a, uh, Japanese uh, video game called Persona 5. And one of the things you have to do in the game is you have to go to class every day. And like one of the classes you have, you're taking a quiz. And there's the question that basically says that prior to movies being produced in, in color, that everybody dreamed in black and white because that's what they knew from oh, what they watched on TV. That's wild to think about that. That is that's insane. That's, <laughs> that is... If you don't realize how insane that is and how true that could potentially be, holy shit! Yeah, think about that. That must have took. Yeah, it took seeing you know moving pictures in color before people dreamed in color. That that's the insane thought if that's true. But but that goes back to the whole idea of no one could even visualize what letters or pictures were, or there's even even prior to letters this language like. How do I convey to somebody, don't eat this fucking plant, it's going to kill you? You don't have any of the mental framework to go about explaining that to somebody in your tribe so they don't die. And how many people died before they put that together? Yeah, I mean, it's like when we eat, um, what is it, almonds? Like, they're basically cyanide up until the point they're fully ripe. Like, I, I always imagine, like, there's a bunch of dead, you know, proto-humans there at the base of this tree <laughs> that's got this almond bush and somebody's like i'll try it fuck it and you know like oh it, i survived so this is fine and I, what happened to cause all these other people to die <laughs> it's just weird the stumbling upon knowledge but this thinking about and like being in a, around a campfire and someone telling a story back then <laughs> like a story of, of their civilization or their culture or their small tribe they were in trying to trying to because a lot of it can't be just knowledge transfer. It has to be like actual storytelling entertainment. I imagine that that had to bleed in a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the only way that, that I mean, if, if you see any of the, the oral history of anything, humanity always wrapped it up in a story. There was a fable like Grimm's Fairy Tales. Because yes. Grimm's Fairy Tales, like, uh, you mean, Urana talked about in One Death Hollers. It's not. She always you know, talks about were, it. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of people that uh, realize that they were actually stories to tell children what not to do as they were growing up. It's like they were they were showing don't talk to strangers. They could be a wolf in all the forms that a wolf can be. You know, predatory in all the ways that a person can be predatory. They'll take advantage of you. You know, there's uh, you know the witch in the woods. I mean, you know there was they were building a lot of like life stories, like you know into the but selling it in an entertaining way that children would take and 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 conceptualize. You see, I always get interested on on the, the whole initial development of, like, the first storyteller. I always get curious, well, what would have been the first story that humans ever told? It it was almost always a religion-based, like, you know, how the sun came up. Um, I mean, because this glowing, glowing, burning thing in the sky, like this weird thing that, you know, without it, you can't raise crops. I'm almost sure that it was like, you know, had something to do with like, because we always have to look up and see the sky at some point during the day. It I had see. to been like the stars, the sky, some kind of creation. I don't know. I, I think, I think, because if you live in a, a, sub, sub, a substance-driven society where you're just, it's, it's hand-to-mouth, like, 
and not only that, but we weren't really growing crops in the beginning. We were just living off the land and animals that we killed and, and dead carcasses. So I'm curious yeah, if but, almost the first story was something around hunting. But you got to remember, without the sun, we couldn't see, and without being able to see, that oh. we would like you know predators would come after us at night. So the sun was our protector. You know so what? We probably carrying up well, a lot of myths about that. Well, now that you say that, I, I I'm so first world that all I think is like it's not that dark. It's like yeah, because there's fucking lights everywhere. Turn <laughs> yeah. the lights off in your house and let me know how that works out. Yeah, or you're sitting there huddled around a fire. There's all these weird noises. You hear growls. I mean, you're they're right around you, and the fire's the only <laughs> thing keeping them at bay. Yeah, holy shit, man! I always get interested thinking about that. The whole, the whole, the whole idea of storytelling, because storytelling takes a takes a place takes place across all cultures. Like you can go back to any type of culture, going like three or four thousand years ago, and there's always stories being told. Like there's always some kind of writing on the wall. A lot of it we don't understand the dialect, and but we, as time goes on, we can discover it and figure it out. But even then, it was all done through a storytelling like way of doing it. And it's kind of interesting too, because like some of our you know first myths or whatever you know go back to like you know I mean there's ones obviously, but you know you got the the, the myths of the gods and all that Sumerian and you know the uh, ancient Americas and all that, but then you still uh, bullet down a little bit and it's a little bit more complicated. You get to like the Greek and Roman myths about their gods. And a lot of the superheroes that came out in like the early 1900s were based upon Greek and Roman myth. And it's funny now we've kind of, we, we, as a culture, we start accepting more and more complicated stories like over time. And now we've devolved back to the point where we're wanting the superhero myth again, because that's all we get in our movies. Well, is I, the superhero I think it looked, as a God myth. I think a lot of Hollywood's it's, I think it's on its death rows to a degree. I don't, I don't think I don't think anybody has a good original idea anymore, and I think a lot of what you're going to get now is more things happening outside of the purview of Hollywood, as time goes on. Yeah, less uh, artistically elaborate things. No, no more of the Shining, and it's possible. Is Wendy insane, or is it Jack, or whatever? It's more like, okay, here's a big guy beating up people with, you know, his fist or whatever, because he's got superpowers type thing. Because it's Holly easy and it's easy to sell. Yeah, well, Hollywood stuff is like a lot of it. It's hard to watch because you're rehashing the same stuff. It's not an original idea. Like I, I think like the Daily Wire did a pretty good job with um, that movie they did, the um, Run Hide Fight or whatever it was. I don't know if you yeah. saw that. I actually liked it. I've not I, seen it, but I know about it. Yeah, I know. I didn't. I didn't. The, the ending. The ending was fucking lame, but the movie itself was good. It had a good story arc. Like it was way more better than I thought it was going to be. I was like, "Holy shit, this is a good movie!" Like it, it had a good story arc right until the very, very, very end. Then it was just like, "That's a that was a stupid way to end that." But other than that, it was good. It was. And I know, but the best thing about it, the the main protagonist was a girl, but she did such a good job, and the character was written so good that it, it wasn't a stretch to wrap your head around what they were doing. Right. And I think that's one of the things that conservatives have lost at for the, probably the past 20 years. And that's why they're, they're, they're suffering now because of it is because they thought that politics were the, you know, the end point that they needed to focus on, but they didn't realize just like we've been discussing, it all goes back to it. Humans learn through story and culture is downstream of the stories that you tell. And if you're in control of the stories, you control the culture. 
and that's what they lost and that's why the daily wire and some of the and like eric july he's a you know he's oh a yeah podcast yeah i don't i donated into, for his comic thing he's getting ready to do yeah the comics that yeah. and he and he makes that point he's like if you want to win back the culture you've got to get downstream of it to where it starts at at its source and, it, and it's the stories we tell yeah. it's the it's, it's the, making you know, the entertainment. entertainment well a lot of it too yeah. is it has to be a well done story if if because we're to the point now as humans where we've had so much complex good stories that when you tell a bullshit woke story, like think of like, <laughs> yeah, like well the the Batgirl shit on the CW that is fucking atrocious. Like oh god, like what did ha- what happened? Did we just throw every idea of storytelling out the fucking window? Well, and it's like Supergirl in there too. It's like they, uh, they uh, like there was an episode that everybody gives shit to on Arrow where they tried to play the gun issue, and they and you know I think Stephen Amell probably was the one that that kind of fought it back from the brink but instead of it just being guns bad like he tried to show like the other side of it a little bit and the and the, the wording of everything got muddled because it tried to stay too middle of the road saying guns are bad but not in this case which is probably closer to the truth but people don't want necessarily the truth when it comes to that sort of thing yeah and then supergirl went completely different route it's like guns bad anybody who uses guns are racist and misogynist and that's the way they portrayed it in the See, show and it's just ridiculous this is where this is insane when you don't get pushed back because it the easy follow-up question to that is like okay what happens when the government has the guns that, but they they're fine with that because somehow whenever you're in government the just the label makes you a better person I, 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 which that, is ridiculous and I'm curious like when I think about it now like the way I view government and anybody who's uh an, an institutionalist to a degree that rallies behalf behalf on the government it's like you do realize all the things you you claim that you hate about our society all is an outflow of the government regulating and stepping on everybody's neck. I think it's funny the disconnect that people have with that. They they they'll freely admit, you know, uh, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, yes. absolutely. <laughs> but and then they'll say that you know, uh, but then they'll turn around and say that only the people in power have the mental capacity to to govern <laughs> themselves or you know the others. And it's like you realize you just said that it corrupts you on the way up. So do you really trust these people? What well, and I that, but just they're all putting their information and who they are out there for everybody to see. And not that, but everybody's doing the legwork to understand who these people are behind closed doors. So now you have an abundant amount of information about these fuckheads who are in charge, and you're not skeptical <laughs> about any of them being in a position of power? <laughs> That's the thing I can't wrap my head around. It's like you, if you understand yourself and the people you interact with, then you should understand these people in power aren't any different. What's like recently they came out and they, they revealed that like Nancy Pelosi has been doing like a lot of trading uh, on stocks that r- really got her a lot of money uh, right, you know, after she or like right, she would do the stock trade right before she came out with some kind of ruling or something like that. And it's clearly insider trading, but it's not whenever hey, they do hey, it. Hey, hey, it's a free market. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, totally it, is that what a free market is? You have inside knowledge and then you freely act upon it? And, and and that's the thing that kills me. Everybody who hates capitalism, they hate the system we got, but they really but they, then they push for more government control, which is the reason we've got the system we've yes. got. It, it's <laughs> you're feeding the it's same crony capitalism. It is it's wrong. Yeah, a, a, a capitalism. I, I don't like using the word capitalism anymore because it's an automatic turnoff to people. It's a it's a trigger word. If you yeah, want to call so it that. I I usually when I talk about capitalism, I just use the word free markets. Free market. Yeah, because a free and they're like, well, what's a free market? A free market allows for failure. So if you if a company does something wrong, 
they should allow to fail. It shouldn't be propped up as a zombie company that continually eats off the dead and doesn't contribute anything. Yeah, it was just like uh, it was pointed out recently, um, and I can't remember who I read this from. Uh, was quoting about the fact that 2020 was nothing but like the, and I think it might have been Spike Cohen, one of the Libertarian, uh, you know, party members, talking about 2020 was nothing but the biggest transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich because of the regulations they put in, you know, the restrictions, the lockdowns, and all that they put in during COVID. Because the only people they allowed to function, which I thought was hilarious at the time, because I worked for a big corporation. Uh, was the big companies and uh, you know they were not running things any better than the small guys in fact they were a lot worse because i can tell you working for a certain grocery chain we didn't do any of the cleaning or any of the prep work that they told or the the restrictions on people coming into the store that they told us to do but we were allowed to still function while the little guys were getting shut down and guess who got the money that big corporation yeah. not the little guys well the thing that makes me laugh too i know everybody acts like california's full lockdown if you live in california you realize no it's not only the real central bubble areas are the lockdown areas. Like here and where we live in SAC, there's casinos all over the place. Zero. So when you walk up to the casino, it says you got to wear your mask. And then you go inside and nobody's wearing a fucking mask and everybody's smoking. Yeah, it's like, that's, all, that's all you ever see at a casino, I think, which is hilarious anyways. A lot of people point out it's like you're so concerned with health, but then you are, you, you know, you flip down and you, you pull out a cigarette. It's like, how concerned are you with your health if you're really, I mean, no it's, judgments, it's, but I mean. That's the thing I can't get over, too, is when I hear people talk about I care about people. It's like, no, you don't. I saw your Twitter post when you're saying all Republicans should die. Like, or, yeah, to me, that, that, the, you're not really screaming that you give a shit about people. Or if they didn't get the jab, then they they should deserve to die in the outside of a hospital setting in their home, you know, yeah. choking on their own, you know, whatever. Yeah, that's See, real compassionate. I, I have a different position. If you want to make the point that those people shouldn't get health care, fine. I'm on page with that. Cool. Then they shouldn't have to pay for any, any of it. They shouldn't have to pay no. for Social Security. If you're saying they don't get these services, that's fine. Let's stand behind that. That means you can't force them to pay taxes on any things that they're that they have the option to use. Nothing. Social contract yeah, is so, that they did not sign up for when they were born. Uh, they were born into, which is slavery of a sense. It is it should not apply to them if they're not if they don't get to partake of the benefits of a social contract. Yeah, you you can't force somebody to pay into something and tell them they can't use it. Like California yeah. is really bad about that. California taxes the fuck out of you, and if you go to public schools, unless you make like a, below like thirty thousand dollars a year, you don't get access to all the different programs for those people. But you're forced to pay into it. And then if you want to use it, you have to pay additional on top of that to get access to the programs you're already forced to pay into. Well, that was the that was something that aggravated me. I was telling Urena, it's like my father-in-law had uh, worked all of his life and then, you know, developed lung cancer, you know, at a really young age. And uh, of all the people who I would have been, you know, would be perfectly fine with getting on the, you know, Medicaid system for the state and, you know, getting help with his medical bills i would you know it'd been him but he f had to fight until literally within months of his life before they agreed to pay for anything that's insane whereas i know deadbeats all over the place that are like 20 years old that have supposedly ruined their back for life and they're getting a free government ride and that's ridiculous it's like I mean, it is why do you make why do you gatekeep the people who need it uh whenever they paid in their whole entire life and they should partake of it well the wild thing when i when i lived in south sac in the in the project apartment complex we lived in there were, we had a lot of people that were coming from other countries that would come here like at age 40 and 50 and automatically get the sign up on government programs provided by the state and the Fed, and they would, they would have access to it. 
So the moment you register for these programs, it, it starts a process called uh, RetroPay. So what it, what yeah. it does, they start accruing at that point. Even though they're not collecting, they start accruing. So by the time it finally gets pushed through, they get all the RetroPay going all the way back. And these people that never paid a dime into the system were now accessing the capital from tax dollars. It, yeah, it, it did that they supposedly put into the system that they didn't. Well, it's not even so much too that they're collecting off the system. We're paying for caseworkers who are now another apparatus leeching off that system too, and they're overpaid. Like it's this big fucking all government is is the biggest fucking vampire Ponzi scheme that you've ever saw. One level to the next just siphons money off another level until it gets to the top where you get Fauci at four hundred thousand dollars earning money for literally jack all nothing. Well, it's it like, starts out it starts out people? we need to have this in this 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 program that does this. And then they do the program and it doesn't work and there's a lot of corruption built into that program. So now they build another program that monitors that program. That overseas, yeah. And then that program gets corrupted, <laughs> and then we need to have better oversight on that one. And all it is, when you start peeling back the layers and onions, it's a bunch of people overseeing other people when it finally gets to the bottom, and these are the people that are supposed to be doing the job. But now you've leached so much capital doing other, all these other oversight positions for this one that you've now cut a lot of the funds that were supposed to go to it. It's fucking... When you've been around these... Um, groups in these in these circles, like growing up in the areas where I grew up at, you just fucking laugh because you're like, it's just so much wasted fucking money. And the funniest thing is, the people who were over the first co- the organization that was supposed to help the product or the situation and failed are the ones that get moved up into the subcommittee <laughs> that overlooks the ones before. So you're getting the same corruption from a diff- but from higher up. Yeah, the, those like same they, people they, they, that fell up the chain. Yes, you fell upward in government. You never fell <laughs> downward, which is the weirdest thing. It is the, the accountability <laughs> mechanism in governments is is not there. There's the accountability doesn't exist. Because no one technically is accountable because no one's technically in charge. And the people that are in charge never really suffer because they can always say it was this other person's fault. Well, cool. We'll move them to a different department then. Yeah, I heard somebody uh, who was a libertarian but almost had like went to the other side making the argument that we should go back to just kings. And uh, and the reason he was so blackpilled was it, and he has he has legit arguments. Oh, you, this got to be Curtis Jarvin. <laughs> Curtis Jarvin's made argue- this argument. Yeah, well, this guy made. Uh, he was uh, part of the Jason Stapleton podcast, uh, but like he. Uh, but anyways, his argument was is that we elect these people, they do a terrible job, but then they turn around and say, "Well, you elected me, so therefore I'm doing the job you elected me to do, or I wouldn't be in this position," which is faulty circular logic, but it works to their benefit because they never get held accountable for anything they ever do. So See? at least if it was a king and he was making the decision, he would at least admit that he was the one that made the decision, and we could all hate him for it. Yes. Whereas these, you know, these politicians. Were like, well, you voted me back in, so obviously you don't hate me, uh, you know, or what I did well enough to to get me out of this position. See, this is what gets me with a lot of the government, the way it operates, because they always fall back on elected officials. When when you look at what majority of governments made up is unelected officials, the elected officials part of a government or their, the institutions in general aren't really elected. I would say you probably have a ninety percent unelected people in those positions of controlling policy the politicians that you vote in are very very small what they really fucking do a lot of them are just and 
and they've outsourced so much of their stuff and they've they've given so much of their own power away to these other people that basically the government's being run on autopilot and it's hilarious every time they talk about oh we don't have enough funding to keep congress in session or whatever it's like it doesn't fucking matter because they're not doing anything to begin with it's yes. the people that you have in these million other like subcommittees that are doing the running of the government anyways and and there's no uh, there's no electoral oversight to keep these people out of those positions to begin with yeah i, I always it, it'd be funny if somebody sat down and made a series. <laughs> oh, excuse me, man. It made a series about government, but they did it in the most brutally honest way, and they didn't take a position or a side. They just stick strictly to the facts. Like, I, I, I got, like, there's this one lady on Twitter or whatever the fuck. She she hit, like, we have, we our channel's on Twitter. Like, me and Mike both have our own Twitter handles that are for the show. And this one lady was going on about this shit because they leaked out the um, Hunter, like people were going after the Hunter Biden's ex-wife's leaking information. She, said, I don't know why they're doing this, this and that. This is such a bullshit thing. And she's going on this tirade and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, let me check out her bio. So I jump on her Twitter handle and look at her bio. It's like resist anti-Trump, all this other shit. So I just left her a message. Was like, this is pretty funny because I'm pretty sure if it was uh, Trump's son's ex-wife coming out and doing this, you'd be like rallying this fucking cause, unseat them. This is the silver bullet. Like you guys ran for the last yep. four years on Russiagate. So I would never do that. That's not the type of person, person I am. How can you even make that argument? Also, I just read your bio. It, you said it pretty loud and clear. So you just have the small capacity of a small mind individual. I was like, yeah, and you're swan diving in the two-foot pool, two-foot pool, two-foot section of the pool. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about, you retard? You mentioned that you'd like to see it in a movie version. Uh, I think it's funny because I, I know you've, you've, you know of Rick and Morty because you've got the Columbus yeah. there now. Uh, well, the creator of that, or co-creator, Dan Harmon, made the show Community, which I absolutely love. Rainer watched the, the shit out of that. Had, one of the episodes he has in the later season is they were trying to fix this uh, up to school, and they have a committee, and they're trying to do that. Well, one of the things they're trying to get fixed is the bulletin board. It's like, you know, it's, it's got, there's holes in the wall, and they can't hold it. It's, it's fell off. So they have to go through each different, and it's making fun of government, how it works. They, they first go to the, the, the maintenance man. The maintenance <laughs> man says, we can't fix this. It's, it's the next group up that does this. They go to the next group, and the next group says, well, we, we can fix it, but we got to have this other group sign off on it. And it goes up and up the chain, and every time that they go up the chain, they have to do a favor for that group to get them to agree to listen to them. And it's perfect, and Dan Harmon's perfectly making fun of the government because Nobody will admit that they're in charge of it, and even at the end of it, nobody agrees to fix it. The guy who, <laughs> who, the guy who originally went to him gets pissed off, fixes it himself, and then somebody comes in after the fact and says, "Who the fuck fixed this? That's not your right to do that." That's that's the <laughs> insane part. It, and 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 it, like I know people like like uh, me and my older brother got a, com- a conversation about anarchism. I'm more anarchist now the older I get. But I'm not anarchist in the way where we have nonstop chaos. I'm anarchist in the way that everybody has free voluntary interaction and we and we apply the non-aggression principle in the equation where force yeah. isn't applied and everybody's voluntarily to choose. Like you waking up and going to work is you participating in an act of anarchism where you're voluntarily choosing to show up and do a job in exchange for your time. They're going to exchange you a way to exchange your energy into the market. But the problem yes. is the government steps in as an me- intermediary to facilitate a transaction that they have no clue about what it is and what it does and how to even go about doing it. Like what gets and, me – go ahead. 
and it's even worse because it's like a mob enforcer. Like, say you're getting ready to go work at your, uh, you know, your job as like a baker or something, and along the way, the mob enforcer steps up and says, "You got a real nice bakery here, but unless you pay us like a, you know, twenty five percent of your take, we're probably going to burn the thing down, or you know, why, why you're not looking." And and so, and that's literally what the government does, and nobody calls them out on it. But at like, least a mob, <laughs> if someone's riding in front of your store, the mob will show up and take care of that problem for you. Yeah, that, they, that's true. They will at least fucking make sure your business don't get burned down because it has a direct correlation to them. That protection racket actually does work because they will step up when they're needed and actually protect. And they won't just take care of the problem. They will take care of the fucking problem in the most aggressive (laughs) manner that it will no longer be an issue where you fucking are paying your protection money at. Um, I think they've even went so far in like a lot of like police forces to do away with the, one of the wordings like protect and serve because they realized that it, it, Force their hand like it, it overpromised what they can actually deliver. Yes. And so you're you're paying these municipal like police you know systems this tax money to protect you, but they admit that they can't be there in a reasonable amount of time to be actually protect anything. So that's why they, they a lot of them have taken that off their their motto, uh, just because they don't want you know the liability goes along with it. It's basically like well, we'll show up and we'll try to adjudicate things, but. You know, see, my- I'm, I'm super optimistic now with the, the amount of gun proliferation that happened, especially in California has a high ownership of guns already. Like people don't realize in California, there's a fuck ton of gun ownership. Like they get this idea that no being California. I think California has like some of the highest rates of gun ownership. People don't realize it. So, but that with, with this whole last couple of years with Trump and COVID and all this other shit, it really pushed it. Like guns are hard to come across now in California, not because they're not being made, because they're being bought on fucking huge amounts. So to me, that's the more people that have ownership of a gun are the other more people that are less likely to want to give it up. Well, that goes back to the whole thing of black markets too, that people, it's funny because like, you know, you'll get people on the left. that will freely admit that it, like say you totally ban abortions, there'll be a black market that pops up and it'll do what the market wants. But whenever you mention the same thing about guns, they're like, Oh no, people wouldn't sell guns in the black market. That's bullshit. Only, you know, like criminals. And it's like, well, th- that's no, the whole thing. The whole thing applies with drugs too. I, I, I'd like yeah. conservatives fall. Drugs. Conservatives fall on that. But like, we just need to ban it. It's like you do realize the moment you ban anything, you have now opened market a, occurs. Yeah, because there's there regardless of how much you don't want to acknowledge it, the demand's there. If the demand's yeah, there, if there's, a, if there's a demand, there will be a way to get it. The market now. will fill a demand, regardless of if it's legal or not legal. It will be filled. And that's where the free market comes in. The free market will supply whatever if, if there's a demand for it. But that's the, the crazy thing that most people are not realizing that, that's killed me about like the jab in general. They're, they're, they're trying to force people to get it. If there's not a market there, people don't want it. They're not going to get it. I mean, you know. Well, that's why you I get mean. that's why the force is there is because the, yeah. the, the government's not listening to market signals. They're making a central authority position that we're going to this is what it has to be. And they're not allowing the market signals to, they're not paying attention to any of the market signals. They're ignoring it. Well, you that's can. The reason, that's the reason they screw up so many industries. That's the reason yes. we had the 2008 housing bubble burst. I mean, because they were propping up a market and giving more demand to it whenever, I mean, and there wasn't anything to even it out. And I mean, at a certain point, the market corrects itself. I mean, you yeah, can't. You can kick the can down the road for a minute, but at a certain point, it, it, the reality of what it is always comes to fruition. Like right now, like we're probably on the, we're probably in a way bigger housing market bubble now than we were in 08, in my opinion. It's fucking massive. 
And it's worse because it's not only just the housing market, but everything. the stock market. Yeah, margin it's debt. <laughs> everything. You have the most amount of debt ever in human history right now on everybody's balance sheets. Uh, I don't know. I, I know everybody keeps throwing the word like debt jubilee, and I was like, you're gonna, I don't think we have enough social cohesion to pull this shit off a second time around after 08. I, I mean, I really don't know how if, if three or I mean, they were lucky because only the housing market crashed and the, and they didn't have the stock market at the same time. It, it came like four years later. So they had a little bit of a, a window there to kind of try to prop one up while the other one was, you know, going through its worst when they all topple at the same time, which is what it's looking like. I don't know how they're going to fix that because you can't just helicopter money in there and fix that. Well, it makes me laugh. Like if you study history, like when the dot com situation crashed, like Ben Bernanke came out and, and like on the on the on open forums or whatever talking with inside fed meetings that they that they needed to move the all the the liquid market that pulled out of the market into another bubble and and they automatically direct fed the housing market they drove li- rates low to get the to get the liquidity still in the system and keep it flowing yeah the the market money needs a flow so if if everybody sees that there's nothing to really invest to money becomes stagnant and it doesn't move and it doesn't do anything if you can shift it to the housing market, money will constantly flow. You get origination fee on loans. Interest gets driven. All these other things, but the money is still flowing. It's not just tied up being stagnant. So the goal is to try to have them do that. But when you create a bubble on everything, it, it makes you more risk averse to getting into stuff because you don't know the long term. Like everything's a giant bubble. So where do you move your, your capital to now if this thing collapses? If, if it crash, if like I said, the stock market, real estate's going to crash at the same time. They're trying to get crypto in the same kind of situation because they realize that a lot of people are offsetting their their risk aversion into the crypto space. So now they want a piece of that, and they're trying to come up with regulations. And when they do, that's going to create its own kind of issues in that market too. So there's literally going to be nowhere. See this? I mean, this <laughs> is where this actually works out really good for crypto. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about this, and they're and they were trying to shit on crypto. And they're like, yeah, but they're going to regulate it. I was like, yeah, but you're missing one key factor with that statement. The moment the government steps in to regulate it, you're now saying this is valid currency. It's valid enough that we got to tax it. You're you're at the same point as you trying to stifle it. You're giving legitimacy to it as as a form of exchangeable currency. That's all you're doing. The moment you step in and saying this is now taxable, so is a currency then? Well, I mean, no. Well, you're taxing it like currency on gains, so isn't that yeah? Like I know right now, me and Mike, we play that coin that coin hunt world, and I made a big push to build this economic um, uh, coin network that we can just collect daily. And I, I've been I always tell Mike is it's going to fall to thirty, and I want to get this thing built by the time it hits thirty. All we're doing is minting satoshis, and like sure as shit, I think we're trading around thirty six thousand now on Bitcoin. And it's supposed to keep falling. It's just the the problem with Bitcoin. People don't realize is a lot as the market keeps falling on the stock market. Everybody's on margin. Everybody's borrowed. Like banks don't want to lend into regular markets. They want to lend into investors and it ties it up in the financial sector. Like if you, like if you get like when the fed prints money, it's reserves. It doesn't go into the market directly. It goes into banks, uh, reserve funds. The banks still have to lend into the market. Well, banks don't want to do a lot of lending, but they want to lend on margin because they understand how fucking hot the market is right now. And they're going to make that mm-hmm. generating income. And it's very low risk compared to what else is on the market. Well, a lot of these people, too, also have a decent amount of Bitcoin. So as the market falls and that margin call comes up that you got to cover your loan offset margin because you fell too much, 
they're going to sell off Bitcoin to cover that margin. So you're going to see a fall in Bitcoin to cover the margin call on the money they borrowed. I think that's interesting. It's uh, going back to the film aspect of it. Um, I think that's kind of a, a one of the better representations that uh, It's a Wonderful Life did. Uh, there's the scene where there's the call on the banks or whatever, whenever, uh, you know, simulating, you know, the Depression era. Yeah, the value and, of the banks, uh, the value of the houses yeah. fell, and all of a sudden there was a margin call across all of them. Yeah, and they, they come to George Bailey's bank or whatever, and he's, like, telling him, he's like, your money's not here. Your money's in those houses that I've built yeah. for you. He's like, you know, and that's a good – and the way he, you know, parcels out the money to get them through or whatever shows the fractional nature of the banking. It's like everybody assumes that, like, my, my money's sitting in some bank somewhere, and, you know, it's not. Like, no. your money was loaned out before you ever gave it to them. Well, the big thing, too, is there's zero reserve now. You don't – banks don't have a reserve requirement. It used to be at least 10%. Right. Now it's zero. After, after 2020 – when the market crashed from COVID, they removed all reserve limitations. So now it's zero. You Banks don't have to hold any of your fucking money, even in money markets, which is even wilder because money markets are the most liquid capital markets flowing yeah. around the world. And those are zero. Yeah. And everybody likes to fall back on that whole thing about, oh, it's backed by the, you know, the, the you know, Federal Reserve or whatever because they came out with those regulations, I think, up to $500,000 or something like that. Yeah. But if they really came to a crisis, do you think they'd have they have the liquidity to actually uh, – that, that's like an empty promise to me. Well, like, you, I don't believe any of that bullshit. I believe it, but I believe it in the, in the worst way. So the bank, so the federal government does have the ability to back your currency that gets lost. Well, by but printing this, more money, but correct, and it's not, and it's not printing money and putting in in the banks. It's not the Fed printing money and putting in reserves. It's the government itself issuing debt to the Fed and then paying that money out fiscally to every individual. So if every individual has a ton of money back in their coffers when the whole market imploded, well, if the markets implode, you're going to have ramification costs all industries that they aren't producing. So they ain't producing, but everybody has money. So you have limited goods. What do you think that's going to cost? Giant inflation, hyperinflation, big Hyper. time. You, you, everybody still has the money they lost, but all the other industries are gone. It's I don't know. It's it's a scary thing. But uh, I'm running a little long on time here. Have you got anything else you want to discuss movie wise before we get off here? Or? No, we got pretty super sidetracked. That was that was a fun conversation though. <laughs> yeah, I did. I, the whole idea of storytelling is 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 so interesting to me this not looking at it too so much from today's stuff but like just going way back in time and the origins of storytelling and the origins of like linguistics and ability to speak about something and, and explain knowledge and transfer it down because all movies technically are a way of storytelling and, and kind of doing knowledge to a degree sometimes it's this knowledge that's fun and sometimes it's knowledge that actually has some kind of tangible real world application and there's a lot of things that people don't realize about storytelling, and it's even true to this day, even though, I mean, we're getting away from it with some of the, the Hollywood big blockbusters. But a lot of the best stories uh, say something about the culture in which they were produced. I mean, yes. even if you go back to like in novel form, like uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, there was so many changes going on in what people knew about anatomy and, you know, uh, science in general. And there was a fear about science. And that's what the story basically was boiling down, you know, that fear of change and what would science go to far and uh, you know you get the same thing now i mean you even go like back to um the dark knight uh, uh returns or whatever uh with the uh, the you know uh the joker in that one and it's kind of like there's a commentary there about uh you know bush uh you know some of bush's policies in 9 11 and because they they say that that joker there's like hints that he might have served in the afghanistan war and 
you know, there's a, there's a lot of things. And, and like, I think the, one of the aspects of that is like Batman is like trying to spy on everybody and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is he crossing the line. And that's, you know, commentary about, you know, the Patriot Act and what we were getting into. So a lot of the best stories have, you know, relevant cultural time capsules, as it were, built into them. Yeah, they were using everybody's cell phones to spy on everybody. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Heath Ledger, I mean, the, the hints of that are supposed to be where he's, like, uh, marching in the parade, and he's, you know, acting like he's a soldier, and they say that, you know, the reason that, that Joker knows, like, some of the basic, like, moves, and, you know, like, as far as parade etiquette and all that stuff is that he was a soldier, and maybe that's his real origin story, all the other stuff he told was bullshit, but the reason he went psychotic was maybe, you know, PTSD from serving in the war, and there's, you know, some basis behind that if you watch the film with that lens and view what what'd you think of the one with um the the newest joker movie with the what's his, what's his face um uh, joaquin phoenix yeah what'd you think of that i really liked it because i think it's a good breakdown and critique of like the way that we treat like the mentally ill in society and you know the the we, like we go out of our way uh, without realizing it to break down every support structure they have by cutting funds here and there, which I mean, I'm not, I'm not for, you know, obviously the government running things, but there's a lot of ways that some of the, even like independent groups that are trying to help out these people get their legs knocked out from under them due to regulations of this, that, or the other. And it leaves the people they're trying to treat without like any recompense, any kind of weight and, and without any, and, and these, some of these people are on the last legs as far as like any kind of social support and a human being without social support can be a pretty scary thing. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, especially if, if, if all they know is the system, if all they know is the system and then you yank it from them, people get yeah. desperate. And so I think that's, I think that movie does a good critique of that. And I think that's what the director was intending. He was wanting people to look at it from that point of view. It's like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, the first thing we should cut is these social programs dealing with these deadbeats that are, you know, like these psycho cases. But, you know, there used to be a time where we locked some of these people up for good or ill and like mental institutions, <laughs> but now they're out on the street. A lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. You know, there's people that you see every day that are on a lot of antipsychotics, and if they don't have access to those, I've seen how they've interacted with me just in a in a healthcare setting, and it's scary as shit. Like, yeah, worse than a, you probably got to have some horror stories. Oh man, there was one guy that like freaked out on us one time because his medicine was not not being covered by his insurance, and it was a psych med, and like he blew up uh, in front of us in a way that if he would have had a weapon, we would have all been killed. And like he, I mean, he had that look in his eye, like I will kill every single one of you. There's a, if you've never seen it, there's a look that people can get, and I mean, he gave it, and it was just like. And, and, I, and I've seen another guy after that that could honestly be a, a new version of Ed Gein that's, like, in my general area. And the only thing keeping him from going around, like, you know, cutting women's faces off, literally, because, I mean, I've talked to the guy, and he's really crazy. Oh, my God. It's the meds that he's on. And people don't realize how close we are to having these people all over the place. And if it wasn't for, like, you know, these programs supplying them with a medication that keeps them at an even keel, we would be in – fucking scary place see this is where i kind of i got an issue with a lot of stuff because i don't think citizens should be forced to pay for other people i like i i i as much as those medications might be valuable to keep certain people even killed i i you're pushing the burden on everybody else who already has burdens in their life to now prop up somebody granted whether either they 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 genetically ended up that way or choice ended up that way but even then like if a majority of people end up that way a lot of it's choice if if we're being honest a lot of people like 
So if you're choosing to, to interact like that, you're now forcing everybody else who already has their own burdens in life to now prop up yours without no compensation to them. Well, the thing is, I mean, the way that we dealt with people like that in the past was probably to excise on the community, discommunicate, you know, excommunicate them, remove them from, you know, a place where they could actually do harm to others in a mass form. But we don't do that anymore. So I don't, I mean, there, there's, we need a way of being able to, to deal with that. I mean, it, it, without, like you said, forcing the burden on other people necessarily, but there's, there's some in between that we got to work it because like, I mean, outside of removing them from the general population, they're out there. And I mean, you know, it, it only takes like, you know, the Joker says in that movie, one bad day and, and you're, you know, and you're that, I mean, that guy's out there, you know, creating, you know, mayhem, you know, chaos murdering. I mean, and it's it's kind of a scary thing, but it's 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 a real thing. It's shitty because this is one of the reasons I'm a huge huge advocate for proliferation of guns. I want as many people carrying guns all the time. And this An is gonna society is a black society. Well, it's not even that, but this is gonna sound a little fucked up, but I don't care. This is just my thought about it. Is I'd rather have those people that are acting crazy and getting threatening to be executed by civilians that are threatened by those individuals and just remove the equation. As shitty as I might sound, it's an immediate problem solver, but we have to roll back a lot of laws holding these people accountable. Not accountable, but holding these people in some weird position for defending themselves. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's the that's the problem we find ourselves in because if you don't give you know some kind of ability for people to defend themselves that are not in that way whenever these people do lash out and that's a lot of the problems we're having with the you know school shootings and all that if there's nobody around to respond to it and you rely on one central place you know to to give you your protection and and to be there which can't be there at all places at all times then you're basically setting the general populace up to be defenseless and yes and, and put them in a bad place because there's i mean there's nobody around to respond to the threat and, you know, the only, the only thing that the people in power are going to have, you know, they're just going to come in there and tag the bodies at that point. That's, yeah, I, that's all I, they do. I always think of Ron White's skit where he talks about he's on this airplane and the, the airplane's having engine trouble. And he, the, there's a guy next to him freaking the fuck out thinking they're going to crash. He's like, you think we'll crash? You think we'll crash? He's like, yeah. And he's like, I bet we beat the ambulance for about 15 minutes. It's like, <laughs> that, that that's the reality of it. It's like, yeah. You, a central authority cannot respond fast like an individual can. And, and well, and it's going back to what we said, it, it's even businesses like the small businesses, the reason that they're, you know, there's so much ability for them to move in and take over, you know, like certain areas of the market that are not being met is because they don't have the overhead. They don't have the, the bureaucratic bullshit. Yep. I mean, they can move like uh, they see a change in the market. They respond to a change in the market and it's always been equated in economic terms to like the size of a ship. You take like a little small, you know, rowboat, you can change that thing pretty quick if you need to, but you get a big like cruise ship. That thing takes a while to turn around. Uh, once it sees there's a change in the sea and you know, by the time that it's changed, is it in the right direction at that point? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, that principle applies across the board. You, you if you get, look at a big person, a big person's big, they're strong. They have a lot of, they have a lot of power and stuff like that, but they're clunky. They're not agile. Like you get like a smaller individual, he's agile. He can make big changes rapidly, and it doesn't require a lot of energy for it to happen. Yeah, the bigger company right. might muscle him out, but the smaller guy can be more adaptive to any situation put in front of him. It's like and, that. And that's the whole reason the military has standards. You can't be a fat fuck. 
<laughs> that's true i mean because i mean and it's also calorie expenditure too yes. i mean once you get out there but yeah, a bigger company needs but, more to consume they need more money a smaller person a smaller company needs less flowing capital to 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 get the same outcome well that goes back to our movie argument there some of the most uh, highest grossing percentage-wise movies are these little independent like horror films that were made on a shoestring budget made like a couple million dollars, which means nothing to a, a company like Disney. Like Disney can literally make a movie earn like that earns like five or $600 million and they lose money on it. Yeah. That's insane. Get, which is awful. And then you take this company that, that made like a shoestring budget movie of like maybe 10,000 bucks. They make like $5 million on it. And it's, and, and it puts like, it actually builds companies like nightmare on M street actually built new line cinema. Like it, it, that's what got them their cash flow to do all the things they did afterwards. Well, thinking about that, Blair Witch is a prime example of that. Blair Witch yeah, was made I mean, on a stupid small shoestring budget. It killed it. Yeah, it was one of the highest grossing movies of all time, just uh, percentage-wise. Yeah. Um, and then, and it's funny because I think New Line has has maybe died as a company, and it's and and the last big thing they did was like the you know the Lord of the Rings movies or whatever, and like you know which is only something that once you get like super huge can you make but then like you know but it was that little independent horror film nightmare on elm street that got them the the cash money that that got them started to where they could actually down the line make something like lord of the rings all right buddy you want to wrap on that note then i think so all right man thanks for coming on dude i appreciate it no problem is uh I, I love the talk it went to a lot of different places that that's uh interest that i have so i appreciate it it always it's like it's like a locust it's just it's your the way your thought works is you'll be talking all of a sudden like squirrel and you just take a side note. <laughs> yeah, let's go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> no doubt, man. All right, dude. Thanks for coming on, man. All right. Take it easy. You too.